Support for Boston Public Radio comes from the Peabody Essex Museum, presenting Our Time on Earth. This immersive exhibition celebrates the power of creativity to shape the future of our planet. Now on view. Tickets and more at PEM.org. And Newberry Court, a full-service retirement community in Concord, Massachusetts. Newberry Court is committed to creating active, independent lifestyles for persons 62 and over. More at NewberryCourt.org. We start with politics with General Flynn, taxes, guns, Jared Kushner, and back here at home, Stan Rosenberg's husband. Then speaking of Kushner, which will come first, an indictment or Middle East peace? Ground truth, Charlie Sennett on that and North Korea. And at noon, we'll ask you, is populism dead? Candidate Trump promised what President Trump has failed to deliver. All that's been delivered are two Big Macs, two filet of fish and a chocolate malted. <laughs> We're all revved up with the Reverend Zyra Monroe and Emmett Price on churches across America giving sanctuary to immigrants facing deportation. Our TV man Bob Thompson on Matt Lauer and Monica Lewinsky standing up to power. Then we'll open the lines and ask you, worried about your future in America? Prince Harry's American fiance, Meghan Markle, has to take the British citizenry test. We'll get you ready for it. Just in case, all that coming up on Boston Public Radio, 89.7 WGBH. YouTube Rowdy, I am Marjorie Egan. You're listening to Boston Public Radio, 89.7 WGBH. Good morning, Jim. Hey there, Marjorie. Congratulations on another great piece in the Globe editorial page today. You, you're my best publicist. I should give you a cut. You don't even know how to tweet your stories out. I mean, I'm serious. You should be doing a little self-promotion uh, uh, kind of thing. I get my act together this morning, Jim, but I eventually did it. It's a really good it. column. It's, by you. the way, it's about the generational divide on the sex harassment thing. It's terrific, and you should uh, read it. So in any case, at Trump rallies, the go-to refrain that erupted every time Hillary Clinton was evoked is now being used against the very man who led the choir. That would be General Michael Flynn. Lock him up! Lock him up! Lock him up! Lock him up! That was outside the federal courthouse the other day. Joining us to talk about Flynn's guilty plea was clearly the worst moment of the week for Donald Trump. And the best, the Senate passing his tax cut plan and other headlines along the way, local and national. Peter Galzinas, columnist for the Boston Herald. Frank Phillips, State House Bureau Chief for the Boston Globe. Peter and Frank, good to see you both. Good to Thank see you. you. Good, good to you. see you. Thank you very much for, for coming in. So, um, as we just heard, uh, Flynn, of course, Michael Flynn, pled guilty to lying to the FBI. And then the president tweeted out something, at least we thought it was the president at first, saying that he fired uh, Michael Flynn because he lied to the vice president and lied to the FBI, implying that he knew this at the time. Then his lawyer says that he uh, was the tweeter and not the president. But some people are saying, his uh, president's opponents, obviously, that um, this could mean that uh, an obstruction of justice was right, right there from the start. What do you think, Frank Phillips? It's a joke that his lawyer did this. Um, he's the tweeter in chief. We know that. Uh, even if the lawyer said to say that, it's, it, it, we've been told this is official pronouncements from uh, the president in the past. So he's got to live with that. Um, you know, it, the question is, uh, what was his intent in firing Comey when he did it? Was it because he filed, you know, Flynn uh, uh, investigation or not? And I, that's what hangs in the balance here and where we go uh, going forward with a, an obstruction of justice case that Mueller seems to be uh, pointing at. And also apparently some of the, uh, uh, the House and the Senate are looking at or at least one of them is looking at it. I, I saw a senator talking about that's where they were going. Feinstein was saying that, Senator Feinstein. You know, the thing is, too, you have Obama 
warning him about Flynn when they first met. Sally well, Yates too. And Sally Yates. Mm, so I mean, I mean, you know, he had he had two opportunities to uh, to listen to them. Well, you know, but but the thing, uh, even though uh, what's his name, John Dowd, the lawyer, and yep. I'm totally with you, Frank. The notion, even if he suggested it, that Trump does anything on Twitter that anybody tells him to is ridiculous. It is a big deal. First of all, it's the first time we've heard Trump say that it wasn't just. Uh, because he lied to the vice president, but rather because he lied to the FBI. And you don't need to be a constitutional scholar to say, well, if he fired him because he lied to the FBI, it is fair to assume that most people, even the president, know that lying to the FBI is probably a crime. And then if you say to Comey, go easy on a guy who I know has committed a, 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 a crime, it seems to me it's sort of like the textbook definition of obstruction of justice. And how juicy that he could end up being hung because of his own Twitter account. Does it, I mean, whether you're for Trump or get, does it get any better than that? <laughs> it doesn't get better than no. that. And I think he's been warned that over and over again and continues to do it. And that Friday night tr- uh, tweet, as you say, is was extraordinary uh, development in this whole case um, where it goes. He seems really intent on protecting Flynn. Flynn must have something on him. But I, what it would be, I don't know. It's just a conversation between... During the campaign about collusion, uh, that would indicate collusion. It could be, but it's just one-on-one conversation. I don't know what else Flynn would really have on him. Well, you know, I'm sorry, Peter. No, I kind of wonder if he even reviews his tweets because, you know, he just gets – he. You know he's tweeting all this stuff. Then he's got that thing with Lester Holt where he just he just shoots his mouth off because of the Russia thing. Right. He said yeah, the whole yeah. and I was going to fire him anyway and yes. all of this stuff. I mean, I don't think I think he just from from one minute to the next. I kind of wonder if he even knows where he is sometimes. Well, well you know there are misspellings and that. And by the way, speaking, of, Marjorie mentions this all the time in your paper. That great I don't know what the formal relationship is when Stat a couple of months ago did a comparison, that's the science and medical part of the globe online, compared his speech patterns and other kinds of things from 15, 20 years ago with now, there is a dramatic difference in the two men. I think we could be studying you because you go to Worcester and and get greasy (laughs) hot dogs and you're about the same age. That was off the air, by the way. Yeah, that that was off the air. (laughs) What's the name of the hot dog place in Worcester worth like 75 cents? You don't, Peter, you're a working class hero. How can you not know this? (laughs) I don't hang out hot dogs in chili and melted cheese. That's right. That's true. But seriously, I, you know, he's, he's, you don't have to anymore. Exactly. You what? He is hugely overweight. He has a terrible. He eats McDonald's. No, you can't oh, just say he eats oh, McDonald's. The tell new the book story is out. The book, yeah. Corey Lewandowski, uh, our, our buddy uh, Chuck Todd, interviewed him yesterday, and Chuck That's will be great. with us Thursday morning. Part of the book that Lewandowski and this other guy wrote, David Bossert, is that his, is I don't that know his what name? His name is. Wrote uh, is uh, Let Trump Be Trump. Is that the title? I think it's the title. Let Trump be Trump. The story, if you read the Washington Post, I haven't seen the book yet. His favorite dinner (laughs) is two Big Macs, two filet of fish, and a chocolate malted. And and Mike Allen, who writes writes or owns Axios, which is a great Mm -hmm. online news service, I think, in any case, did a calculation of the number of calories and grams of fat. And I'm sure you won't be surprised that both exceed the daily limit. But what does it say? 
that the leader of the free world, we had, you know, it just, just occurred to me a couple of weeks ago, we were talking about when he met with uh, uh, the Abe, the uh, prime minister of Japan. Oh, yeah. And they, they dine on the equivalent of Big Macs. Yeah, cheeseburger. And then you but saw you, that when Obama was there, they went yeah, to the, one did. of the finest in sushi fairness, restaurants. In fairness, but, though, in fairness he, before the book came out, in, he did tell a certain colleague that we all know. That uh, on the on the on the Trump plane, uh, yeah. that that uh, his key to to handling all this is not to eat the rolls, not to eat the buns. <laughs> oh, remember that? Do, do, you, re- tell him do, do you remember the movie? Do you remember the movie Super Super Size Me? Yes. yes. The guy went for a month eating yeah. out of McDonald's, and he almost killed himself. Didn't they say his kidney was going to fail? His kidney like two was going to fail. His mind was going. He, he had was that depressed. awful. He had that awful scene there too, where he gets sick out the window of the truck. Right. Oh yeah, that was oh, gross. Yeah, yeah. But you do wonder how he. Can do it. Does that happen to you, that. Jim? Do you, do you get, he doesn't eat the buns. Or, he doesn't eat the buns. That's what it is. That's the okay. key. We're talking to Peter Gelzinis and Frank Phillips from the Herald Globe. How do you eat a fillet of fish without the buns? With your, with it's got all fingers. this sauce no, everywhere, you eat right? One, but you eat a half a bun. That's what I do. Actually, you eat half a bun. <laughs> you eat the one, the bun that doesn't okay. have the sauce on it. Okay. You know, it's interesting. The thing we really know about, we can talk about in depth when it comes to the Constitution. We're a little weak. So on the same day that, I mean, it's sort of the bad news, good news thing. I. Chuck, uh, 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 the tax bill passes the Senate late at night on a Friday. And I, I, I have to play the Marjorie Egan role here. Peter, starting with you, how do they sell this thing? I mean, there. I think with the exception of Donald Trump, everybody in America knows this is a huge transfer of wealth, uh, a, a huge transfer of wealth. How do they market this thing with the midterm elections? Just what are they, 11 months away? We did something. Well, we didn't do it for you. The polls show the people, at least as much as they know about it, don't like it. How is this an asset the, for the The only thing I can uh, see is that they have faith in the fact that there is this still seething nugget of the po- population that, that will vote for, you know, will will follow them anywhere. I mean, you know, the amazing thing about... I interact with a few people who uh, who scream and yell at me on online, and I interact. and uh, and uh, the thing is, I keep saying to them, "You won. What are you so angry about? What are you so see? They're still seething, and I think that's what they'll do. They'll play this off the same way, you know that uh, that you know the libtards and all of this stuff, and uh, and that, and I think they'll they'll rely on that to carry them through. You know, what, even though you know they're, they're screwing. They're screwing their own people. A lot. I had a few people over the weekend telling me that that that. Uh, but look at my four hundred one k. Look at my four hundred one k. Right. Exactly. Look at the stock yeah, market. I get that. Right, so exactly. I think there's a lot of that too. That uh, that people think, well, you know, you yeah, give but, all these corporate tax cuts, and my my four hundred one k is going to go through the roof forever. Right. Well, that's in Boston here, but go to the hinterlands, and not they're not into four hundred one k. Yeah. They're in the salaries and what they have to pay in taxes. So why are they buying this? Because, because the people think, below seventy five grand are going to be very badly hurt. I think they buy into it because they they tax cuts tax cuts. I think they don't know. Uh, they're that informed about it, and all they hear is that Trump and the Republicans have given them tax cuts. And I think we're giving them too much credit to having really delved into it and looked at it. You go to Fox News and you'll get a different picture of all this. Everybody's going to get a tax cut. You know, I'm so – did you see that piece yesterday in the New York Times about Sean Hannity on Fox News talking Mm -hmm. about his incredible reach? It's got 13 million – I couldn't believe the numbers. 13 million people at night on Fox News alone. And then he's got this radio show, which is millions of people all across the country, and how – 
successfully, he's it's, just those are the people who buy it. Yeah, those are and, the people but who the, buy it. But the kind of the lying stuff. That it's he, another media ecosystem out there. It just go on this morning. Talk about Fox News. They didn't talk about the tweet Friday night. They talked about the FBI agent that had to be let go yeah. and how discredited Mueller is in this investigation and and. And how discredited the same FBI agent worked on the Hillary Clinton email investigation, and that is a disgrace That's because right. she, she lied. You know, we she, should we should fill lied, people in apparently. on that if people aren't watching Fox News. Actually, it's a legit story. I mean, the question is, what kind of impact no. is it having? They is the chief it. FBI investigator in this thing apparently was texting back and forth with a woman, a lawyer for the FBI, in ways that, let's put it this way, were not exactly flattering yeah, to Hillary trashing, Clinton. Yeah, they were trashing Trump and, 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 and saying praising, good things about yeah. Hillary Clinton. Mueller got rid of him, and I think it's good, obviously, that he got rid but of him. But those are the lead stories. Well, well this right. is— And then I, they go to the immigra- immigration story, the guy who killed the young lady out on Kate the board. Kate Stiles. Yeah. San Francisco, and that's the next story. Yeah. So this is what the people are consuming out there, and they're— they're, they're seeing a different world than we are here but it, but when we read the Boston Globe and even the Boston Herald. I but it's so, it's so true. Well, I think the Boston Herald is down with Fox News for the most part. I would it? say so. Yeah, <laughs> I would say so. They, they, they've bought the Kool-Aid hook, line, and sinker. I, I, I'm not. No, but, you're not. You're like the, well, like the ray of the, sunshine. Uh, the guy wandering in the wilderness. Yeah. But, you know, can I uh, to take Frank's side on this about what the – it oh, is. I mean, I think the average person on the tax thing is saying, well, at least the president is not endorsing a child molester for Senate. Oh, wait a second. He <laughs> is endorsing a child molester for Senate. We you need know, him. We it need seems him. to me, I know uh, the first, who was the first person who said about a week or so ago that they needed uh, Roy Moore for the, the vote on the tax package? Who was that? We talked about it about a week or I so ago. Trump said we needed No, it was Roy somebody Moore. else who said. Oh, now, Kellyanne Trump, Conway? Maybe it was. In any case, but it seems to me that, you know, talk about damage done to the Republican Party. If Roy Moore ends up winning a week from tomorrow, and by the way, one poll, I can't remember if it's Washington Post or CBS, has him up six points. The other one has him down three points. So clearly he's in the mix in Alabama. If he's in and gets seated, even Susan Collins, who Marjorie won't mention the name of anymore after I'm, the tax She was package, my hero. Even heroine, Susan Collins says not. that if he wins, if the people vote for him, we have to seat him. How does that not hurt the Republican Party around the country the when a guy who virtually everybody believes is a child molester is serving in the United States Senate? Everybody, the everybody. It's, it's, this is a win-win for the Democrats. For the either, Democrats, either yes. they get a Democratic seat or they I agree hand, completely. They they dump a, a huge load of manure into the Senate that Mitch, Mitch McConnell is going to have to handle. And I, I can't imagine he wants to, and it'll be very disruptive and very in going forward in 2018. But then, but then it'll be a, you said a major this collision with with that and and the people in the Trump universe who will who will accept it, you know, accept what he says about. See, it. I don't. I have to say, I don't buy that. It's Alabama's an outlier, and I don't mean this with Southern elitism, like I usually exhibit. Uh, Trump polls at 59% approval in Alabama. That is really an outlying state. That's about as high as his number everywhere. I find it hard to believe that a moral, decent person who happens to believe that Donald Trump is a better choice for president than Hillary Clinton is going to be okay with a guy who was trolling moles when he was in his 30s looking for teenagers. You see all these interviews with people in Alabama. They said they don't believe it. These women are all lying. That moral person person who voted for Trump must have discounted the Billy Bush tape. Hey, listen, abortion, gay rights, uh, climate change, all those things are more important to them uh, where this guy stands than Having washed over all this stuff about uh, child molestation, they're they're going to they're they're making their decision that way. That's why it's so close. Yeah, 
And Billy Bush, by the way, I thought wrote a terrific piece. Yeah. Should say who he is for those is three the, who don't know. He is the guy that lost his job. Uh, he was with Trump on the bus for the Access Hollywood tape, uh, and when I, I can't help but remember him giggling at Trump. I just can't. I'm with him. you. I mean, giggling uh, and he, he oh, did. oh, that's uh, you know. He was but just, that's how you know that that there's something seriously. There's there's uh, pins that are loose. In, in under, who? under that under that orange hair, I mean, for him to actually even infer that that that's not me. On the <laughs> well, every. <laughs> I mean, you got you know what? Where, where was he going with that? First, he, he comes out and he admits to it the, the next it? night or that night. Well, that and, what? Then, and, and then and then you know, there's Billy Bush. What, did he think Billy Bush was just going to go along? With it? Well, that yeah. that, that, that along him with him, him tweeting the, that fascist. Uh, website in from, from the anti-Muslim from, videos. I mean, yeah. He yeah. really last week was really going oh, off. Yeah, the he went off the, he went and, off the and deep and maybe end. Maybe this a Flynn bit. thing is really just driving him nuts because well, he's know, so sensitive about it. You know, it, on the issue that you're raising, Frank, which I think is the most important issue, and by the way, the first person in America who I think used the term unfr- unhinged to describe Donald Trump may have been Marjorie Egan. Oh, I had. Well, and just I'm sure, being really nice to me today. I'm sure I'm you guys you. both. I, last you must the last, want something. Last week, <laughs> I had Joe Kennedy on TV, and we had Mike Capuano here. Two of the nine members of the House of Representatives, who are not Trump fans. And I asked both of them, or we asked uh, Capuano, I asked Joe Kennedy, what if this guy really is mentally unstable? What if he really has a serious psychological problem? Uh, One might argue that a wag the dog kind of thing with North Korea is exactly what he believes in the middle of the night is going to save him from 35% approval numbers. And nobody, is except some really radical members of Congress are willing to take the next step. But what do, What if he really is out well, of his mind? Uh, uh, despite the fact that he's in charge of the world's largest nuclear arsenal. <laughs> yeah. Other than right. that, let me, say, let, me, let me say this. Soon. Democrats shouldn't wish, uh, be careful for what they wish for, because having Mike Pence there, he knows how to legislate. He's been a congressman. He's been a, a governor. He knows how to deal with the legislature. He'll calm things down, and the Democrats will see in a right-wing agenda being slipped through the Congress. Much more commonly, I agree with that. It's, yeah. In terms of politics, it's much better to have a Donald Trump there who's a huge disruptor for the Republican Party, and they have to take sides. They have to, and When they go back to the districts, and a lot of people are upset about this, and they're polarized. And with him there, the Democrats but, have a much but, better chance of capturing they, one of the houses. But have the Republicans really taken sides so far? It seems to me they've rolled over no, they most haven't. of the time. No, they haven't, and now they're going to have to pay for it at the polls. But if he's gone and everything's calmed down, you know, you got a Jerry Ford situation. You know, the, the best example of rolling over, by the way, is Mitch McConnell, the Republican leader of the Senate, was originally is if Roy Moore did it. And then he became, correct me if I'm wrong, a Roy Moore's got to go. And this morning, for the first Backed time, off. I heard him say, let the people yeah. of Alabama decide, uh, uh, which is really rolling over. is rolling over. But, you know, in certain people's minds, including my own, I'm thinking I, I totally agree with you about Mike Pence being more competent and, and you know, not crazy, uh, very right wing. But, you know... We're getting closer and closer to a disaster here with North Korea. So I think in some people's minds, at least you say, well, Pence may get through a right wing agenda, but he's not going to get us blown you know, up. I, th- I think the scariest thing is he uses that. You know, he'll use Rocket Man, little Rocket Man, when 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 people are starting to make more noise about how crazy he is. You know, I mean, he seems to fall back on that stuff. He falls back on the idea that, you know, talks about the tax cut and keeps saying, you know, how this is really bad for me. This is bad. You know, I've got rich friends that are mad at me, you know. And, and 
massages that that illusion for the people that he knows will buy it. You know, two last things before we leave the national stage, then we'll come back to Massachusetts. One, we should not miss the fact that finally uh, Congress is about to act on a gun measure following 58 people being murdered in Las Vegas. It's not bump stocks. It's not background checks, but a measure passed the House Rules Committee that would allow for this uh, reciprocity on concealed carry, which means that if you're allowed to do concealed carry in, say, Texas, if this were to become law, and it's going to pass the House, clearly, I don't know about the Senate, then you could conceal carry in Massachusetts with none of the rules, the more careful rules in Massachusetts applying. That's one thing that's happening. But the second thing, much more back to politics, is I was reading this morning, I assume Mitt Romney was going to be the next United States Senator from Utah, (laughs) but are you reading that both Steve Bannon and Donald Trump are going out of their way to convince Orrin Hatch, who is a mere 84 year, I think he's 84, 83, 83, yeah. 83 to run for re-election. In fact, he's flying back and forth on Air Force One with uh, Trump to persuade a Hatch to uh, stay. You know, Mitt Romney would never consider challenging Orrin Hatch for a nomination. Oh, no, 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 no. That, no. That would not happen. But I, I think he would run if, if Hatch does drop out, if he wanted to run. I think the question is, does he want to be a U.S. senator? That's a lot of – that's a drag – uh, he may want to. He may want to get back in the mix. But well, if he um, believes everything he said about Trump, he should. Well, he well, believed it until he was ready to be Secretary of State, state. Yeah. Right, and then he true. was rejected. So, <laughs> well, he's also had nine, ten months to look at Trump as president. So that's uh, true. No, I true. no. Well, didn't Orrin Hatch just say that Trump was the greatest president ever? Yeah, he did say he one did. Of the something yeah. like that. Yeah, yeah. he did. So and he also you, said he thought Abraham. Roy Moore would be the greatest senator ever. So that's <laughs> we just got an email email from Jack, who's the guy that keeps track of all your bans. Well, I haven't banned anything a, today. As a sort of Trump supporter, the current discussion is fascinating. He says four never Trumpers all going wild, which is the exact opposite of Fox News. So there you go. We're well, providing balance here to Fox News in our teeny tiny. So is he way. is he being critical or is he? I mean, I think we're stating the facts. What 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 was factually untrue that's been said here, Jack? I don't know, Jack. Email back and tell us what was factually what was factually untrue. Um, and tell me why you are still a Trump supporter. It, it, it gets harder and harder, it would seem to me, to be one. Who's done the best? By the way, I would argue, before we take a break and come back to Massachusetts, the person who has done, I would make the case, the best pieces explaining Trumpism, six months in, eight months in, 11 months in, is Matt Visor from your newspaper. He has really done, spe- gone out to the places like Pennsylvania. He's terrific. He He's really terrific has done reporter. great work. And uh, if you want to see it, he, he and learned understand everything it. at the State House Bureau. Was he on the State House Bureau? Was, was he really a State House He was there for several years and he trained uh, right under me and uh, I told him how to do it. Yeah, there you go. It's amazing. He's still <laughs> we working are at the paper. No, no seriously. He's, he's great. And he's also a lovely guy. I he's just, a really good guy. I, I adore and uh, he knows coffee, too, yes. He, he knows coffee. He's got great little curly hair, too. I love to see him on TV with all those curls. We're going over the latest news from Capitol Wasn't he Hill. the guy, do you remember when they got confused, the CNN, the Chiron of the bottle, and they they put a, a, an identifier under him suggesting he was a leader of the alt-right? And don't you remember this? We talked <laughs> oh, to him yeah, right after right. that happened, right. and he got like zillions <laughs> yeah. of condemnations and threats in any case. Okay. We're going over the latest news from Capitol Hill to Beacon Hill. We're moving to Beacon Hill next with Peter Gozinas of the Boston Herald. And Frank Phillips of the Boston Globe. The conversation continues on 89.7 WGBH Boston Public Radio.
Welcome back to Boston Public Radio. Jim Browdy and uh, Marjorie Egan. If you're just tuning in, we're talking politics. The Boston Herald columnist Peter Galzinis and Frank Phillips, who is the State House Bureau Chief for the Boston Globe. You know, we should start this by playing a little excerpt. Stan Rosenberg, Senate President, uh, held a press conference outside his office on Friday afternoon, did not take questions, but the goal was to address the sexual harassment allegations uh, disclosed by Yvonne Abraham in her great reporting against his husband, uh, Brian Hefner. Here's a little piece of Rosenberg. If Brian claimed to have influence over my decisions or over the Senate, he should not have said that. It is simply not true. And I'm looking forward to fully cooperating with the investigation and look forward to their findings. And I'm confident that the investigation will find that Brian had no influence on the workings of the Senate. And by the way, while that sound was playing, one of our colleagues in the control room says the Globe is reporting that Stan Rosenberg has stepped aside. I assume he's not stepped down as speaker. Nope, stepped aside. He has stepped aside, aside yeah, during pending the, course, the investi- investigation. The Globe is reporting right now that he is stepping aside, as you just said, during the uh, duration of the investigation into allegations against mm. his husband. Um, and that was the editorial title in the Globe this morning, Rosenberg must take a leave from presidency, and he has. What do you think? Uh, that's a smart thing to do. It's still, I am bothered by um, the fact that the Senate is doing this investigation because he will be the Senate president in the future. Um, if if the, the investigation doesn't uncover some, some connection between uh, his uh, husband and his, working, you know, the Senate and getting involved in Senate stuff. So you so think he, it should be an independent investigation? Uh, absolutely. It should, be, it should be the attorney general or somebody else, or some other independent agency come in to do this. Why isn't Healy uh, doing it? I mean, she's talking about why is I mean, well, uh, Democrat uh, and Democrat? Or, I mean, what's the problem? Uh, for one, she could uh, usually child molestation like this would go to the district attorney. So they don't do that. It's another branch of government. Well, we don't know if it's child there, molestation. We know it's sexual harassment. I mean, well, sexual harassment. Uh, I, I apologize. We're I apologize. Thinking about Roy Moore. Go ahead. Yes, it's okay. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm well, there's so corrected. many. Jesus. It's difficult to keep it Thank straight. you, Marjorie. Save me from this, will you? That was actually me who saved you. No, okay. Marjorie Close saved enough. me. <laughs> um, anyway, uh, it, it goes, goes to the district attorney. AGs don't get involved. And in, the rest of it is the working of the Senate did this. And so what would she get involved? There was no illegal activity going on um, with with in terms of getting in the Senate, at least. I mean, she could probably maybe find something. But I, I have to go back to This is Stan. And Stan is a, a good, decent person. Everybody knows is. him. He's a good legislator. He's a very, you know, very popular among his uh, supporters in the, in the, in the Senate. They, they strongly feel he's done a very good job in bringing the Senate together and working. But he's got this problem in his personal life. He's never, never had a relationship until he met this young boy. They were both brought up in foster parents from one family to the next, never had any kind of emotional development. And he got involved with this kid who's 38 years younger than he is. And he got warned three years ago that he was interfering. He tried to put up a firewall. And um, it's a question whether that firewall was actually breached. But now we have an issue of this kid was out doing things that that Yvonne Abraham has uncovered is really... Very troubling. It is very troubling. But I'm going to get back to the firewall thing for a minute, and then Peter will get you involved in the in the conversation here. I have no idea what Stan is doing. I mean, in terms of his decision making vis a vis Brian or not. That, uh, but I know a lot of people in the office there, and I've spoke. I actually spoke to a number of the people in the office. You know them too, and I I, I, I don't mean to editorialize, but I will. 
For those who are suggesting that the firewall has been breached vis-a-vis them, that any of these leaders there are taking orders from Brian Hefner, to me, is preposterous. That doesn't mean that Brian is not convincing, you know, Stan Rosenberg that maybe his best course is I, X. I, but you don't think that you don't think his staff has taken no, orders. No, from, I know. Is I'm pretty sure, and from the people I trust in there, no. It's the definition of the firewall. Is the firewall that he's getting into the Senate President's office like he was in 2000, late 2014 when Stan was about to take over. He was getting in, talking to senators uh, about assignments, where they're going to staff But you don't see in, that. And that was the firewall to get him out then, of there, yes. out of the workings yeah. of the Senate. Now, he's out there doing some tawdry, awful things and saying he has connections in the Senate and stuff like that. I think the investigation will find, uh, you know, we'll have to find out, did he actually breach any kind of firewall around this? Do you think it's got to be an independent investigation? Yeah, I, think it, Dennis? I think it should be. I think it should be. But I, I, every time I listen, every time I think of this story, I'll, I'll, I don't know why, but I just keep hearing that song from a chorus line, what I did for love, you know? I mean, it's just, no, but that it's is... like, it's, it's sad because, as Frank was saying, you know, he's, He's a well-respected guy, and yet, you know, you've got this situation in his personal life that, on 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 the surface anyway, just doesn't seem to make any sense. Well, but, that, but with all due respect, my attitude about these things, we talked about in the Bill Clinton days, only when it drips into your professional life. If, if he chooses to be with someone 38 years younger and is in love with a guy, if it doesn't affect what he does, well, he knew his he business had, he had that. a heads up three years ago. No, I understand. No, 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 I, we, I agree. We, but that's, we confronted him three years I know ago you did. with I know. all the tawdry things. There were things we couldn't put into print. He knows his kids are trouble. He went and married him. I know he did. And now he he goes to functions. He goes on official junkets. He he goes to functions around the political functions with the kid, with his husband, his who is nothing but a troublemaker. Can you and explain to me? Mental, you know, is can really you mentally you know ill. Excuse me. Sorry, you know what this, this reminds me a little mm. bit of? Going way back when Barney Frank got in trouble sure. with the male hooker who was operating a prostitution yeah. ring out of his basement. Steve Gobi, it was a is similar, that his Yes. Yeah. Hot bottom, whatever hot bottom, we called him right. at the time. Right. It, it reminded me a little bit of a similar thing because Barney Frank had been in the closet for all that time. And this was sort of his... Uh, one of his early, earliest relationships. As with Stan, we should say. He didn't well, come out but, until this right. relationship. Well, that's exactly yeah. my point. That the, um, But again, and I also have to point this out, you know, if just to be, have a, be on the same page here, if a woman were up at the Statehouse involved that's with a man true. 40 years younger than she, she would we would no one would take her seriously, and I think that the double standard. Oh, um, uh, uh, well, it's it's, I, it's new and breaking ground, so I, I think we're all sort of. Can I, what uh, do we say? Yeah. For, hey, Mr. Know, State House Bureau yeah. Chief, can you explain something to me? I mean, there seems to be a consensus. It's, hard. it's always hard to explain <laughs> that consensus to you, but that he should step down. What does that mean? How operationally? He's got a huge, huge staff, many of whom I know. Obviously, you know. How does that work come today? How do you run the Senate? What happens to the huge number of people who report directly to him? Do they report to the interim Senate? How does that work? I think they report to Harriet Chandler, who's... Well over the 80 number two, uh, over eighty. She years is old. over eighty. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> and she is uh, the China, uh, pro tamer majority. I forgot what she the is. Number majority. two, whatever. Number she two, is. and the, they'll have to report to her, I assume. And so, how is the Globe so, editorial page going to say that's that's independence if he? 
she keeps the same staff, and I would I, I would argue she needs to for continuity oh, purposes. Well, you know the staff. I know the staff. They're, they seem to be pretty, great. pretty competent staff. Uh, and uh, I don't know. I don't know how they. Uh, don't you think at some it? point, though? I mean, okay, there'll be an investigation, but it seems to me at some point he's got to come out and. You know, maybe in a perfect world, this isn't necessary. But I think he's got to come out and and either stand by that relationship and explain why he's in love with this guy. Well, he has. Yeah, I think I, he's got to answer questions. Well, he has to decide. I mean, I think it's got to go into that. I mean, it's it's a senior side, and you're and you're probing his private life. See, but, but I don't think I don't know if this we're going. I think this whole notion that because there's an investigation pending, I can't. Whatever he said at the end, you know, I answer questions, but I can't. There's no reason why you can't answer questions right. to the public pending an Stan, investigation, and he should. I think but the, why, the why feeling is, in the political world is Stan has got to decide either he's going to be Senate president or he's going to be he's going to have this marriage. And he right. can't have both. This kid has shown he is mentally ill. He is absolutely erratic. He's in a he's at well, he's, he's at a, a mental he's at a mental institution now, getting therapy. He's got to defend that. He, he's got to defend it, and he's got to explain why this works. You know, I mean, given given the guy's track record and the previous history, I, I just think that that's where it's going. I mean, you know, we, you can get into the into the nitty gritty of what he is alleged to have done or haven't done or anything like that, but I think ultimately. At some point, he's got to come out, Rosenberg's got to come out and, and sort of say, this is why I love the guy, this is why I'm going to go forward with him, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Otherwise, I mean, that's sort of the nub of it. That's where it leads. So you're saying it. he's got to choose between being Senate president right. and staying in the exactly marriage. Exactly what Frank said. Exactly. You're both saying that. Yeah. Because? Because the, the young man yeah, can't control wrong. himself. Right. He's, he, he's got a, a real affliction here, and he is off in some institution, hopefully dealing with it. And but we have seen it, and he's tried to control it. Mustanis, he can't. He obviously can't, and it has been hugely disruptive to the okay, Senate. Okay, last and question. I think, the, I think the Senate will kind of press this upon Stan at some point. Last question. So, if the investigation, either internal or independent, and I think there's, I I think independent makes sense, but regardless, says that everything Stan has said is true. I knew nothing about this. It had no impact on my decision-making. Can he retake authority as Senate president? I think that's the question the senators are going to be asking. And as this seeps in more, they're going to demand and they're going to be calls for him within the Senate to make up your mind. Are you going to continue this relationship with so disruptive to us or you're going to be Senate president? Or how can he, in other words, or I think it's quite, it's entirely fair for them to ask, how can you do both? Yeah. If you think you can do both, how can you do both? That's well, the issue, yeah, it, exactly. the issue isn't really what Stan knew, because I believe he didn't know this. I, I think it's I, a big issue. If, I, but, but I don't think that's the issue with this. I think the issue is what is his husband going to be telling people going forward about his ability to influence, mm-hmm. his, his ability to say, to trade sexual f- favors for powerful decisions Well, the issue the is, president. but it, the question is, is he trading? Does he have the power? Did he ever have the power? But when and you convince people that, you, listen to what these oh, people have said. Oh, you mean whether said. they do They've or not? If, I, I put up with this because this is Stan yeah, Rosenberg's husband. And well, how does he even explain problem. that whole thing? How does he explain it? I mean, uh, you know, should that, when he, when he gets, uh, when he gets, uh, when he comes out of treatment, you know, does the public have a right to listen to this guy say that it'll never happen again or, I, no, you know, I, I lost my mind? I, I think or, he's got a real real problem. Stan has a real problem. As you say, come out of treatment. You know, it, it, I'm all better now. That'll yeah, never right. happen. It yeah, happened right. a few years ago, but it won't happen yeah, again. Yeah. And, and, and like I said, I think he's got a – I mean, it may – Who's he? 
Rosenberg, I think he's got to he's got to delve into and explain that personal relationship and how it's going to work going forward. No, it I may seem intrusive, but too. I think I this, this kid got persuaded and got Stan to come out of the closet. He got him through a cancer, he a did. terrible cancer. Stan's really very devoted to helping mm. him. They both went through foster care yeah. in the most horrible circumstances. And there's a real bonding there. It's a real situation for Stan. I'm, I'm sympathetic to him on this. I don't so, mean am it, but, so am I. So am I, because he's, done what, he's he, one of the few people on Beacon Hill that ever gave a damn about foster care. Yes, and I remember exactly. 30 yeah. years ago, he did terrific work with, with foster care, and he and Marie and Parenti were the only two that did. But when he married the kid... The kid. No, <laughs> okay. he's in his 20s. I, we know what he is. Okay. Frank, nice to see Frank you. Phillips. And you too, Peter. Thank you. Thank Pleasure. you very much. Thank Frank you. Phillips is the State House Bureau Chief for the Boston Globe. Peter Galsinas is a columnist for the Boston Herald. Thank you very much, you guys, for coming in. Those. Coming up, Rex Tillerson has drastically downsized the State Department, pushing out dozens and dozens of public servants. Now is it his turn to go. Charlie Sennett joins us for the mass Rexodus and more. Stay tuned to 89.7 WGBH, Boston Public Radio. Welcome back to Boston Public Radio, Jim Browdy and Marjorie. President Trump's retweets of Islamophobic videos posted by the far-right group Britain First prompted outrage across the British political spectrum with members of parliament demanding that their government condemn the president of the United States. Far from making America great again, his actions in retweeting those tweets actually reflect badly on his office and actually undermine the very principles that the United States was founded on. When I uh, think of uh, Muslim children in uh, Newcastle waking up to find themselves being attacked by the president of the most powerful nation on earth, because that is how it will appear to them, then my heart bleeds. We cannot simply roll out a red carpet and give a platform for the President of the United States to sow discord in our communities. So if this hasn't undermined our standing in the world, is the uncertainty of Rex Tillerson's tenure destabilizing our diplomatic ties? Or how about Michael Flynn pleading guilty? Here with us in Studio 3 to take on these and other headlines is Charlie Sennett. Charlie's a news analyst here at GBH. He also heads up the Ground Truth Project. Hello there, Charlie. Hey, Jim. Hey, Marjorie. Well, Charlie, so let's get, we'll get back to the uh, other stuff in a second. I want to start with, with Tillerson. Um, you know, we've heard all about Tillerson hollowing out the State Department, that we don't have the people there to do the kind of work we need to do. On the other hand, uh, he's been sort of more diplomatic than, than the president in many areas. So what does it mean that we – that uh, as one of these headlines says, the guillotine is hanging over Rex Tillerson's head and it's just a matter of time before he's out of there? Is this You know, good, I'm not bad? sure. I'm not sure that's true. You're not. I, I, I'm not. I don't think there's any love between Tillerson and Trump. But I also have been talking to some people, former diplomats, people who uh, worked in the State Department, who, who have a pretty good sense of this stuff. And it's it's not at all clear that's that's going to happen. It's really possible. And Tillerson's already sort of on the outs with Trump. He called but, him a moron, as we yeah, know. Yeah, there is that. Allegedly. <laughs> um, no, but I that would upset me if one of my yeah. colleagues yeah. said I was a moron and Jim, I heard about it. That would be that. slightly yeah. troubling. All right, that's to good. Me, that's go ahead. Note to self, Jim. I'll remember that. Um, no, I, I, I think that um, I think that these things are really connected uh, in what's going on right now in the in the Middle East and inside the State Department. 
Tillerson, you remember, just last week went to Europe and gave a very reassuring speech and talked yes. about how, okay, this is the ironclad agreement. We, we are with you. We're with Europe. NATO, uh, the concerns around the EU and Brexit, and just saying, look, the United States stands strong. I gave, loved it. Gave this sort of traditional speech about how important this alliance is. Right like the next day, it gets leaked that Pompeo, head of the CIA, is going to be taking his place as Secretary of State. Now, who... Who would have leaked that? It's Kushner. I mean, the theory is Kushner leaked that. I don't know this for a fact. The theory, the conjecture is Kushner leaked that because Kushner has a vision for a foreign policy in the Middle East that involves Saudi Arabia and Israel in an alliance against Iran and that Tillerson doesn't look at the Middle East so simplistically. Tillerson, as an oil man, really knows the Middle East. He understands the hydraulics of Sunni and Shia relations in a way that makes him... That was why I thought maybe we really might have a great Secretary of State here, a guy from the business sector who really knows oil, who really understands the politics and knows how to, how to, how to do deals, how to make diplomatic agreements, because business people can be very, very good at that, right? But Tillerson is the adult who knows the terrain. Kushner is totally in over his head. Well, Tillerson thinks Kushner's plan is very dangerous from it's, what I it's read. It's extremely dangerous. The well, pieces. except that which he knows. The reports over the weekend was uh, Kushner's doing these discussions with a new crown prince in Saudi Arabia, trying right. to broker a Middle East, Middle East peace and barely telling Tillerson or anybody in the State Department what they're even doing. Right. This is a young man who knows nothing about the Middle East and might know a tiny bit about real estate going into the most volatile and complex region in the world and cutting side deals with a 32-year-old crown prince who is out to totally transform Saudi Arabia and could succeed or could dramatically This is the fail. new guy, right? This is Mohammed bin Salman, yeah. MBS as they call him. He's like the new reformer of Saudi Arabia. The vision is if you get a regional peace deal, Kushner can walk away with an Israeli-Palestinian peace deal. I've, I've joked, and I actually I, I mean this on some level. It's possible that Trump could actually bring real estate savvy to the Middle East in a way that could be really productive. Like that is actually maybe a way to move the thing forward. I'm not discounting it. But when you have Kushner off going rogue and doing things like leaking that Pompeo is going to be the next Secretary of State, you start to get into into an erosion of American authority and gravitas and a sort of ability to resonate. It undercuts Tillerson in a really dangerous way at a very dangerous time. And it's becoming this crazy rhetoric of this Trump administration is really starting to impact our foreign policy. And the European capitals are looking at America and they're, they're, ho- they're throwing their hands up and saying, what, what is wrong with you guys? What is going on? So now you have France circumnavigating the State Department, going direct to the White House, to the three generals, and they are, they are not alone in that. Others are starting to go around the State Department. That really begins to get to be a structural weakening of the way we carry ourselves in the world. And I'm worried about that. Yeah, I wonder if there is a Mideast peace and it's negotiated by Kushner. Can he accept the Nobel Peace Prize from jail? That's a real question. But, you know, uh, he's not uh, – that was a joke, a very poor joke. Hey, it, it, also there are rumors, speaking of the Middle East, yeah. that t- as early as tomorrow yep. – Donald Trump's going to touch the third rail of Middle East politics and announce that uh, that Jerusalem is the capital of uh, Israel, as he promised on the campaign trail. One, do you think 
that's in the cards? And two, how, how disruptive – If well, what's the impact of him doing that vis-a-vis any discussions with the Palestinians? I think it is in the cards. I'm not sure it's really going to happen. And if it is a card in the deck, it's a joker. It's a, it's a really dangerous, crazy card to even have in the deck. It's – Look, what do you mean to threaten the Palestinians, but yeah, not to that, use it? That Is that could, what you're suggesting? That could very, very uh, significantly implode any hopes of even stability. Forget peace. Stability in the Middle East is something you want to try to achieve before you get to peace. If you take one of the most fraught and emotional final status issues of the Israeli-Palestinian peace agreement, which we've been following now for decades mm-hmm. and trying to watch this, and I've watched it up front. If you take that and you put it forward that it's it's preordained, Israel will have Jerusalem as its capital in totality as they define Jerusalem, and you tell the Palestinians that we understand that you saw East Jerusalem, which is largely Palestinian, as the, fu- as the future capital of your state, that's off the table. You no longer have a peace agreement. You just have an eruption of violence. Now, if... So what's this, the Trump thinking that this is so important? <laughs> I don't know. Well, let's assume for argument's sake there is thinking. Yeah. Is, is, the, is, is the notion that this matters so much and is so critical to the outcome that if we dangle this thing that the Palestinians will be more reasonable? Is that – I mean what, what, what's yeah, well, the no, rationale? What, what you're dangling though is their greatest fear that you're going to lose. Right, and I'll pull it back says the uh, art of the deal man himself. If it turns out okay. you come to the if, table – I don't know. Look, I mean, if he if – he if he is thinking on that level and he understands how emotional Jerusalem is and that's something he wants to do, even then, I would say that's a great mistake. Mm-hmm. Just the same way, remember with North Korea? Oh, he's just bluffing. He's being bad cop. Well, that's actually really dangerous. And I don't think it's a very wise strategy. Jerusalem is like very similar in, in that sense. We did don't you have live much... there? Did you... I, I did. Yeah. We, we live there as a family, right? So we have two children born there. Yeah, yeah. Can I tell a really quick story? Sure, of course. Okay, so we have two sons born in, this, in the Holy Land. Mm. One is born in Jerusalem. One is born in Bethlehem. The one born in Jerusalem has uh, a really interesting passport. He's a U.S. citizen with a U.S. passport. But on his birth certificate, which he got from Jerusalem, from Israel from the municipality of Jerusalem under the state of Israel, because it's their self-proclaimed capital, he received a birth certificate. Now, we have a two-faith marriage. My wife is Jewish. I am Catholic. We have, we have one agreement on this, which is the Red Sox. Other than that, she's sort of New York Jewish, and I'm Boston Irish. Um, the, the deal with this was really interesting, because when the birth certificate is signed, they right away say, um, you know, what is, the, what is the mother's faith, which determines whether this person mm-hmm. is recognized in Jerusalem as Jewish and therefore Israeli because of the mother's birth. And so that birth certificate beholdens the son as someone who could be a, a, an Israeli, right, mm-hmm. could make Aliyah. It's interesting because in Bethlehem they define the religion and therefore the nationality, and they call it that. Your religion is your nationality. In Bethlehem, in the West Bank about five miles away, where Gabriel, our son, was born, his birth certificate says religion of the father, Christian. Therefore, the kid is Christian. And so what I'm saying is this is a place that is holy to three faiths, Islam, Christianity, and Judaism. Jerusalem is the core 
of those three faiths, and they're, they all feel a great emotional connection to it. Christianity may be under Scripture less than the others because it's always the new Jerusalem. It's not about the place. Right. But for, for certainly for Judaism and Islam, it is a powerful and very holy place for all three faiths. Now, when you talk about giving one of those faiths the city of Jerusalem, you really are dealing with a very fraught and complex issue that I don't think this administration has really thought through. So in Jerusalem, um, you have uh, on, on our son's passport, it says, now birth certificate is one thing where they put religion and nationality. On your U.S. passport, they don't care what your religion is, right. but you have to list your place of birth. Place of birth for our son who was born in Jerusalem is Jerusalem, comma, blank. Jerusalem is not recognized as the capital of Israel by the United States. It's recognized as the eternal, indivisible capital of the Jewish people, but it's not diplomatically recognized as the capital until final status talks. They're not saying it's not the capital. They're just saying it is a piece of final status talks for this to happen. That's a really important diplomatic thing to understand. And so as long as our son's passport is Jerusalem, comma, blank, we're dealing with a process where you can hold people together around something that's holy and get them to all agree. And that's an important leveraging piece of the peace agreement. It's not to disrespect Judaism's ties to the holy city. It's deep and it's thousands of years and it's the core of the faith and I admire it and I connect with it. But you can't deny the other two faiths, that they also have a connection to that. And when you do that, and you do that in a clumsy way, you can really ignite violence. Remember, Muslims revere Jerusalem as the place from which the prophet went to heaven. So their connection is very deep to that, too. They have Al-Aqsa, the mosque, which sits atop the wall. This is overlapping sacred space, complicated terrain, not one to be messing with rhetoric around or doing something rash. So my guess is they won't do it. They might dangle it out as a card, as you put it. That in an, in and of itself is dangerous. We're talking to Charlie Senate. Seems to me one of your kids better be a rabbi or a priest. <laughs> Charlie seems to be the way to so go. The, but do you, so does that explain it? Because like Jerusalem is such an important issue. It's, oh yeah, it's really, yeah, it does. Like it's deep. It's emotional. So we only have a little bit more than a, a minute left. Do you want to talk about North Korea or the uh, or Prince let's Harry? Do, let's do the North day. Korea so that you feel better. Uh, where are we now? After it was about a week ago, <laughs> this ICBM <laughs> was sent up the, 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 the East Coast. Where I think are I could we? Make Marjorie feel better if we talked about Prince Harry, but <laughs> yeah, I'm I willing would. to go there on North Korea. Maybe yeah. we, Just a minute. Just, all right. Just, where are we? Where we are is we have another military exercise in the region. I believe it begins today, if I'm remembering correctly. We've got... Um, With South Korea. Right. 12,000 U.S. military personnel and 230 planes will be participating in this, in this uh, military exercise, vigilant ace. Look, the Korean Peninsula is is roiling, and when Rex Tillerson goes to Europe today for this trip, and he's being undercut with rumors, and you have this chaos inside the State Department, once again, we begin to weaken who we are as a country and how we carry ourselves in the world, and that could be fateful in the Korean Peninsula. And I, I'm isn't I, he the one that's theoretically leading the back channel discussions? I don't mean personally, but isn't he overseeing? He Tillerson. He Tillerson. Whatever back channel discussions are going on with the North Koreans is that not what we're led no, to that's understand? True. That's that's absolutely true. But but he can't have very convincing back channel oh, discussions. I agree. When you've got a, he's being undercut and questioned, 
And B, people are starting to wonder in the world, is Trump going to be impeached? Is this Flynn uh, uh, case, you know, that they now actually have him copied to these charges, are we we going to see an impeachment of, of, of the president of the United States and therefore should everything just be put on hold? Do we have to deal with these guys? Yeah. That's... That's a little bit ahead of ourselves. I don't want to. I don't want to get too far out on a limb, but I do want to say, look, the world is wondering what is happening in Washington and where is the leadership we've grown accustomed to in this world, and and you know it's a good question. We have a lot in common, I guess, with our brothers and sisters. <laughs> well, like, here's to Harry. Here's, here's to, to Prince Harry. Harry. He's yeah, going to change that whole culture. He's adorable. I don't think so. He's awesome. Charlie he- you, Senate Charlie. joins us every week. He's a news analyst here at WGBH, where he also has up the Ground Truth Project. Charlie, thank you very much. Thank you. Up next, we are opening the lines and asking you: Is the populist Republican dead? And special for Jim Bradley, we're also going to talk about Donald Trump's diet. The two Big Macs, two fillets of fish, and one chocolate malted every single night. How do you survive? That's next on 89.7 WGBH, Boston Public Radio. At noon, we'll ask you, is populism dead? Candidate Trump promised what President Trump has failed to deliver. What has been delivered, at least to him, is his favorite dinner. Two Big Macs, two filet of fish and a chocolate malted. <laughs> We're all revved up with Irene Monroe and Emmett Price on churches across America giving sanctuary to immigrants facing deportation and the president spreading anti-Muslim videos. Our TV man Bob Thompson on Matt Lauer, Monica Lewinsky standing up to power, and the death of Gomer Pyle, the nerdy marine, marine who gave us golly. Then we'll open the lines and ask you, worried about your future in America? Well, Prince Harry's American fiance Meghan Markle, has to take the British citizenry test. We'll get you ready for it, too, just in case you need to leave town. All that coming up on Boston Public Radio, 89.7 WGBH. From a transmitter atop Great Blue Hill, this is WGBH. Live, local talk, Boston Public Radio. Hey, Jim Browdy. I am Marjorie Egan. You're listening to Boston Public Radio 89.7 WGBH. Hello again, Jim. Hey there, Marjorie. So when it comes to being a populist president, Trump's actions have not been louder than his words. Every day... I wake up determined to deliver a better life for the people all across this nation that have been ignored, neglected, and abandoned. I have visited the laid-off factory workers and the communities crushed by our horrible and unfair trade deals. These are the forgotten men and women of our country. And they are forgotten, but they're not going to be forgotten long. These are people who work hard, but no longer have a voice. I am your voice. 
I am your voice. Nearly one year into his presidency, it turns out he's not the voice of the laid-off factory worker, I think you'd have to admit. He's the voice of Wall Street. During the campaign, he said that just, just a few things. He said the wealthy would pay more taxes, the middle class would get a break. He was going to make health care more affordable and negotiate with Big Pharma to drive down the cost of drugs. The analysis during the campaign was that on the issues that the middle class and working poor cared about, Trump had a gut instinct, but now it looks like his appetite for Big Macs and filet of fish and chocolate malts is the full extent of the populist <laughs> gut. Of course, he couldn't be where he is today without the assist of the Republican Party, a party which is allowed him to pack his cabinet, as you know, with Wall Street veterans, corporate executives, a party that supports the tax bill that will primarily benefit the rich, a party that's been obsessed with making health care less accessible and uh, affordable. Robert the Line's asking you a couple of questions. One, we ever believe of politicians who runs on a populist platform, again, particularly if it doesn't jive with his or her historical positions on the issue. And that's what Marjorie wants to talk about. And I want to talk about the following. <laughs> Can you ever trust a politician whose favorite dinner, according to Let Trump Be Trump, the new book by Corey Lewandowski, his former campaign manager, can you ever trust a politician, I mean this sincerely, whose favorite meal He's in his 70s, not exactly in 0% body fat range, is two Big Macs, two filet fish or is it two filet fish is and a chocolate malt. I mean, it is really, to me, unbelievable. There's, there's a screw loose somewhere. <laughs> If that, I mean, an occasional filet of fish is fine with me without the top part of the bun, as but, I told yeah, you. Yeah, Peter Gauzinas said that was a secret, that, he, yeah, that the president that takes the uh, the buns off. You know, am I, am I making too much of that? When I read the watch, I haven't read the book yet, but I, read, I don't think it comes out actually until tomorrow. Chuck Todd had them uh, Lewandowski. Uh, Lewandowski yesterday. Yep. And the Washington Post did a piece on Saturday summarizing the high and low lights of the book. The two things you take away with is Donald Trump has a real temper, which I would argue I'm guessing that most chief executives of the United mm -hmm. States have had. That's not that aberrational. The other thing I took away is his favorite meal. Let me say it again. Two Big Macs, <laughs> two filet of fish and a chocolate malt. Do you? I'm serious. If I said to you. I didn't know they had. Wait, they, they don't sell chocolate malt at McDonald's. Well, chocolate they? milkshake chocolate, or whatever it is. Chocolate shake. Chocolate shake. Yeah, it's chocolate pretty shake. good, actually. It's mostly air, but it's good. But here's my question for you. I'm sorry to obsess on this because I know you want to talk okay. about the populism. I know you spent a lot of time Ankle with Big Macs. No, I have thought. Up close and personal. I've thought about this. If I didn't say Donald Trump, if I said said to you, a CEO with great authority in this country who's in his 70s, mm -hmm. his favorite meal is two Big Macs, two filet of fish and a chocolate malted yeah. from McDonald's. Yet. Yeah. What would you what would you say? I, you know, I think that all this healthy eating is a is a liberal conspiracy. I mean, Michelle Obama was <laughs> the one. Fake news. That, yeah, Michelle Obama said we should have, we should have uh, good food in the schools, and it's all a bunch of ridiculousness. Keep the fries and Big Macs in the schools. So he gained we get, a lot of weight. Let's get back to you. Well, know, that. Do you really think so? Do you? Well, he looks it. Oh, I don't. I haven't even noticed. Yeah, but can we get it. back to the, the populist theme for a minute? Generally, candidates sadly run on platforms that are at odds with what their position is as when if they're lucky enough to be elected president of the United States. But try to explain to me again, as you did when uh, when Frank Phillips and Peter Gozinis were here. How does he explain to that factory worker who who I just mentioned a minute ago? Uh, his health care plan, his tax plan, on and on, which are completely at odds with the campaign rhetoric. I'm not saying he wouldn't have won without it, but that was a pretty – saying, oh, I yeah. am your voice, voice you disenfranchised. The, well, again, that's why I've so, been so surprised by this because we talked incessantly during the election about income inequality. We talked incessantly mm -hmm. about the fact that 
the reason Trump was connecting, uh, besides his, you know, being a great TV personality and charismatic and stuff, was his pitch to the forgotten men and women of America. It was the same pitch that Bernie Sanders is making to forgotten men and women. Not of America. exactly the same, but it had well, some of the same Bernie strains. Sanders is not the communicator that Donald Donald Trump is. Well, I didn't just mean that. I mean some of the content. But like, for example, Big Pharma. You and I both praised he him when he said drug prices. We're going to allow importation gonna... of drugs from Canada. We're going to take on Medicare is not is going to have to negotiate drug prices, which would be huge. He, was not he gonna... meets with Big Pharma in February and he does a total 180. He was going to fix Obamacare. He was going to give us better and cheaper health care. That was mm-hmm. a huge thing because of course until people started to get Obamacare taken away from them, people didn't like Obamacare. So he's going to fix that. He was going to have a tax plan. He still is saying it incredibly that's all about the middle class and he, he gets His up. rich friends aren't happy. I mean he's this is we talked about this from the beginning. The idea, the Roy Cohn idea, that you just keep repeating the lie and people believe it. And Donald Trump has said you keep repeating the lie, people believe it. So he keeps repeating the lie that he's not going to benefit from this tax plan, even though estimates are he's going to save about a billion dollars, which is which is a lot. Not to mention when he dies from his family from the estate tax, a lot of money. And you know, we always get these things on the estate tax, Mr. Taxman, about how all that money's always been taxed already. We shouldn't tax it again. But it's not the the children haven't paid the taxes Mm. on it. it, so it's not. When they inherit all that money, they have not paid taxes on it. So it's, I don't think you can say it's being taxed twice when it's by a different uh, person getting it. But in any case, um, so he said, and infrastructure. You know, we were going to have all these jobs. So I don't know. Sometimes I wonder because remember when the, the House passed the uh, Obamacare, first the Obamacare repeal, and Trump said it was mean. Mm-hmm. And now they've uh, passed this tax bill, and Trump is saying, well, maybe we should not have the a corporate interest rate so low, even though he's been saying tax rate twenty percent all along. Yeah, well, but the only reason he's saying for without giving people a headache, the rate in the bills is twenty percent. He's saying it could go to twenty two percent, and that's so that they'd have a little more money to play with to restore yeah. some of the provisions they had to knock out because of the concern some Republicans had about deficits, which they all used to care about, but they apparently don't anymore. So, what's your point about my, that? My, well, my question is: Does he is he paying attention to what's actually in these bills, or is it just that he was a fake populist all the way the, all the way along and was only hoping to give tax breaks to his, you know the cabinet, which is full of guys well, from Goldman you, Sachs? And here's my analysis based on nothing. Someone said this on our show about a month or two ago, who actually is much closer to this than us, and of course I can't remember who he or she was. Is that uh, he says? Whatever works with a particular audience. That is his great skill, by the way. I mean, you look at his crowds and how wild those people go. Is that if it's a working class crowd, he says that. And I assume for that minute, he believes what he's saying. He said what he said at the convention, the I am your voice speech, because that made sense. But how cynical – I I mean, the point of the the discussion you wanted to have is how much cynicism will be bred in the American electorate – when the people who voted for Donald Trump to a great – I mean to at least a significant chunk of them thought they're voting for a Republican populist, right. if that's not oxymoronic. And I think even if you're a big Trump supporter, it is really hard to argue that he has been a populist well, president. Well, no. The establishment of the Republican Party has obviously prevailed on, on taxes. And as people have pointed out, it would have been the – it would have been if Jeb Bush had won, this is probably the tax claim it would have gotten. Or if Ted Cruz had won, it would have, it would have been – the establishment – uh, that he was running against has has kind of prevailed. I mean, in fairness to the president, lots of politicians say they're going to do things when they run for office, and they don't. Um, usually, people make a try at doing them, and then they fail. But they but they try, um, and he seems not to have tried. Although, 
there is talk of some kind of infrastructure thing coming this summer, but I don't think it's the kind of infrastructure thing most of us think of, which is a big government put people to work kind of plan. Eight seven seven three zero one eighty nine seventy. So it appears we have two things on the table. You want if you want to talk about the disappearing populism of candidate Trump into President Trump, that's fine. If you want to talk about what I want to talk about, what does it say about a man or a woman? in their 70s, whose favorite meal is two Big Macs, two filet fish and a chocolate uh, malted. Uh, 877-301-897. Have you ever even had a Big Mac in your whole life? Yes. No, you haven't. How I many have. in your whole life? Not that many. Okay. I didn't like them. Now, if I were to say to you, if I were to bring dinner over to your house tonight and say, Marjorie, I'm bringing you a dinner. Yeah. Just because you've done such a, well, your column is great today in the Boston Globe. Thank you, Jim. You've done some wonderful work on the radio. What I'm bringing is two Big Macs, two filet fish <laughs> and a chocolate malted. What, 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 would you, what would your response be? Well, I wouldn't really want it. I'm sorry, it. I'm obsessed. I wouldn't. On this. I wouldn't. I, I wouldn't really want it. You know, Paul points out that the president doesn't drink. There's a lot of calories in alcohol. That's true. So maybe he. You, and Mike Allen, is the guy behind Coke. Axios, one of the great political reporters. Yep. On, I don't know if I said this in the first segment. If I did, my apologies, but it bears repeating that he did a calculation of the numbers of calories and grams of fat in Donald Trump's favorite meal, with which I am obsessed, and both exceed the daily limit for both calories. <laughs> And for grams of fat. Well, he also goes out to dinner um, on, on occasion, and he has uh, the steak, the well-done steak. Went to steak. Japan, and he had a Big Mac yeah. in Japan with the prime minister of the country. And don't forget, he gets the double piece of chocolate cake when the guests only get the single oh, piece that's of right. chocolate cake. Who did we learn that from, Chris Christie? <laughs> I don't know. He likes meatloaf, too. I love meatloaf. Mike, you're in Rhode Island. You've been very patient. You're first on Boston Public Radio. Thank you very much for calling. Hi. <laughs> Well, this is going well. Mike, Hi, Mike, let me try it again. Mike from Rhode Island. Oh, he's Hi. there. He's there. Welcome. Hi, Mike. Hello. Hi. Hi. You're on. Is this it's, happening? It's Frank. Oh, Frank. Oh, it's, oh, it's Frank. our fault. Oh, I'm, I'm sorry. sorry. Frank from Rhode Island. Are Can you from Can we speak Rhode to your brother, Mike, please? <laughs> Kidding. Frank, welcome to the show. Hi. Okay, we'll put Frank on hold. Hey. We'll get back. Oh, you're oh, can you hear? you're there. Yeah. Yes, we can. This is a good well. It's Greg. Oh, Greg. It's Greg. <laughs> Oh, my God. Yeah, this hey, can't guys. Be. Uh, hi, Greg. Are you from Rhode Island, I hope? I, how you doing, guys? Yes, actually, yeah. Well, we got that right. And I'm still, Marjorie's still a Trump supporter. I'm still a Trump supporter, Marjorie. Now, are, Sorry, you just, are you I guess his motto has to be. Go ahead. Huh? Go ahead. You What's go ahead. his motto? I guess his motto now has to be. His motto has to be, I don't eat the buns. I only grab them. <laughs> Have a good day, guys. That's a good one. How long have you been working on that one? Oh, he's gone. Okay. Okay. Well, actually, in light of the fact we had his name wrong oh, three he, times. Oh, I wanted to ask him about the tax bill, but he hung up. So let's go to Michael in Worcester. Hi, Michael. Hello, Michael. Hey, how you doing? Excellent. Good. I just want to make a comment about how crazy it is that they're starting off with 20% as a cut. Why not start at 30 or 33 and see what they do with the money? Um, probably because Obama wanted 28% and we can't get close That's to it. a very good point. <laughs> Remember that was his proposal to cut the tax rate down to 28%? For corporations. Yeah, for corporations. So, But I think that's a great uh, point. Shirley Leung has got a great piece in the front page of the Globe today talking about uh, uh, big corporations in Massachusetts who do not think this is a good idea, even though they're going to get a massive tax break because they're worried about um, a, a, a lot of uh, funds for uh, research in terms of ph- the pharmaceutical industry, which is huge here, and they're worried about the funds getting cut to education because you hear all the time that we don't have workers that are qualified for some of these great jobs that are all around because our education system isn't training them. So 
That's a great point. And you remember the story uh, when the the Trump guy, uh, what's his name, Jim, the Trump guy that said we could we could redo our kitchen for a thousand dollars. Oh, Gary Cohn. Gary Cohn uh, went into that group with all the CEOs and asked them if they were going to spend their huge tax break on on hiring people and wages, and almost nobody raised their hand because they said they were going to spend the money on, you know, their investors would get the money back and their shareholders would get the money back. Hey, Michael, don't go away yet. Do you have friends who are Trump supporters? I do, um, and it's disheartening, to be honest with you. Well, putting aside how disheartening it may be, do you say to them uh, – we, we had one with Greg a minute ago, but he hung up after the bun line. Uh, uh, do you say to them – ask them whether they're disappointed in what's been delivered versus what was promised by the guy they voted for? Has that conversation ever come up? I'm just curious to know what the explanation is. This is going well, too. Michael, thank you. for. Should we take a break here? Are we having problems or are we just having two weird line things? Let's try. Let's Okay. We're going to try one more. And if uh, there's another phone problem, we'll take a break and fix it. Where do you want to go, Margaret? I think the person up next, is it Tim from Amesbury? Hi, Tim. How Hi, are Tim. you? Hi, Tim. Hi, guys. Can you hear me? We yes. can, yes. Thank you for calling. Awesome. Sounds great. So to answer Jim's question about how Trump is going to pull off the uh, fake populism thing. I, I don't think he's going to pull it off at all. Here's the deal. The guy's been bankrupt at least four times. He's, he's been sued and had to pay millions of dollars for bogus Trump University. He's been in 3,000 civil suits. Yeah, but Tim, can I stop you for a second? Every single voter who was paying attention on November 8th knew that he had been bankrupt a number of times, knew that he'd been a defendant a number of times, knew all those things, yet enough people well, decided we could live with that. And So where are you going with this, that, that he's living up to what you thought he would be, but, but people voted for him? Here's the, here's the good news. Okay. I live in New Hampshire. Yep. So you got to discount my statement that I'm going to tell you a little bit, because the people in New Hampshire are smarter than the people in a lot of other parts of the country. Okay. I have a half a dozen good friends who voted for Trump. I voted for Hillary Clinton. In any event, every single one of them is done with him. Every single one. And yeah. what is it that turned them away from him? What, what did it? I'm 65. I'm active. I, I post on social media. I have 300 friends. A lot of them voted for Trump. I, uh, the good ones, the ones that I know well, are all done. That's their word, done. And what is it? What is it? What did it? Was it anything particular or just a series of things or what? I think it it was the two filet of fish, actually. What did it? What was it, Tim? (laughs) Thank you for that. What What was it that turned people away? Oh, it's just one thing after another. First, it started with the health insurance. A lot of people are independent people that are self-employed people are very conservative, and they voted for Trump. And then they realized that they were going to get the bad end of the deal. Yeah. And there's other words I can use. And that's when it started. Yeah. And that was some people that actually are friends of New Englanders that live in Florida, where all the one of the people actually had her car, her BMW car, painted on the glass with Trump's name. That's how committed she was. Mm. Anti-immigrant. That's what got her on the Trump bus. She's all done with him. Well, he's honored that, by the way. The one promise he has honored is he is uh, not just supporting the uh, 
the uh, good the bad hombres, but the good hombres. So I I don't know if uh, Tim, this connection is horrible. Thank you for the yeah, call. Yeah, we're having a tough time with the phones today. I don't know if it's our new system or what's going now, on. Now, John Dowd, Marjorie, just as an update from our yep. friend Andy Barowitz mm-hmm. at the New Yorker. John Dowd, as you know, is the one who said that he crafted the tweet over the weekend that has gotten Donald Trump right. a little bit of trouble, saying he fired. Uh, General Flynn, in part because he lied to the FBI. Here's the latest from Barowitz. Hoping to put a rest, to rest a mystery that has long bedeviled the nation, Donald Trump's personal lawyer, John Dowd, revealed on Monday it is actually his voice that appears on the Access Hollywood tape. <laughs> 877-301-8987. We're talking about the, 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 the turn, the 180 that populist candidate Donald Trump did. And you know, and by the way, for those who uh, recoil at the notion that we're describing his candidacy as populism, it was. Uh, we've told this story only about 10,000 times. And Marjorie and I spent a week in New Hampshire with our colleagues for an, uh, for a primary week in late January, early February of last year, whatever it was. Uh, we've said it to you before. We can't tell you how many, when we encounter an uncommitted voter, undecided voter, we said who you're undecided between, a huge percentage of those people said they were deciding between Trump and, and Bernie, Bernie Sanders. Sanders. Yeah. So even if you believe that they shouldn't be mentioned in the same sentence, a lot of New Hampshire voters at the beginning of this race considered them a populist from the right, a populist from the left, and uh, they were undecided as to what direction they were going to go. So I-, I think it's fair to say the I am your voice speech confirmed the notion that he was running as a populist, promising to be a populist. And I would say that he has failed to deliver on virtually all of his populist promises. I think that's factually accurate. And we're talking about that, and Jim is obsession with the president's McDonald's diet. So you can weigh in on whether or not you'll trust a uh, populist politician ever again after we get the de- getting the details of this GOP tax plan and McDonald's meals. The conversation continues on 89.7 WGBH, Boston Public Radio. Welcome back to Boston Public Radio. Jim Brady and Marjorie. If you're just tuning in, uh, we're asking you if the populist politician is dead. President Trump clearly ran as the outsider populist. His huge support of the GOP tax plan confirms that he is, I think you could say, anything but. Trump supporters, please, we want to hear from you. Do you still think he's a populist president, as promised? 877-301-8970. Do any of you think a populist politician is sincere? I'm shocked that we have not had people call and said that uh, Bernie Sanders is the uh, real deal in those regards. Uh, Maybe we will. Can we ever believe a populist platform? Again, when you see the role of money in politics and its intoxicating uh, influence. 877-301-8970 is the phone number. And what I'm also adding, because I can't get over it, and I know it's aggravating a lot of you, but it's I'm sorry, is when I read the uh, review, I don't know if you call it a review, the summary of the Let Trump Be Trump, written by Corey Lewandowski and one other Trumpian, the thing that I c- couldn't cast aside was his favorite meal being two Big Macs, two filet fish and a uh, chocolate. <laughs> you know, some of these stories talk about uh, Ronald Reagan's big tax reform and how it was much more populist. That there were, there were the tax breaks for the wealthy, absolutely, but they were also it was a big oh, yeah. deal to him the lower taxes on on families that were in um, the the blue collar or uh, you know not making very much white collar world, and he was populist in that regard. In that regard, which is much different um, than this time around. That was back. In 1986. Anyway, our number is 877-301-8970. Um, so what do you think was going on with the president? Did he, was he just trying to 
scam us all. He never believed the populism. He seemed very convincing about it. And, and you know, when you look back in Donald Trump's history, he talked about these kinds of things earlier on. He talked about universal health care Paid for on. by the government. Yes. And, and, and he talked about how the hedge fund guys were getting away with murder because they're making zillions of dollars and paying very low taxes. I think it was about 10 percent, was it not? It was some crazy mm-hmm. number like that. And he Chuck ta- Schumer likes that, too, by the way, because a lot of them are his big supporters. He's one of the Democratic outliers on that. Well, I, then shame on Chuck Schumer because nobody should be paying 10 percent that's making millions of dollars. I mean, they should be paying their fair share. So he talked about this all during the campaign. as much. As, and other Republicans, remember, didn't like him because he was not singing their tune, which was slashing the government, which is really low taxes for corporations and the wealthy. Trump was saying something else from the other guys that ran against him, and that's part of the reason why they didn't embrace him because he well, wasn't— Well, and trade, the same thing. They were— uh, And trade, yeah. That's yeah. a great point, too. And, and um, so it's like he's done a 180, and it matters to some people. We had the call earlier from New Hampshire that said a lot of his Trump friends are off the wagon now. Uh, that's been true in my family, too, that people that were on the— Is that true? Line, you didn't I tell me that. that. I told you that before. Yeah. That people who voted for Trump in your family are no longer with him? And so forget asking the caller. What what has caused the sea change in your relatives? Because I think it's the same thing, thinking that he was going to be much more of a populist, looking out for the middle class, looking uh-huh. out for the people whose wages were stagnant, and plus the embarrassment factor. Well, I you think. know what the incredible thing? It, it, you know, we're talking about how there's very little populism in this tax thing that passed Friday. And by the way, one, one of the things we haven't discussed, which I'm sure we'll discuss with John Gruber tomorrow, while there are differences in the House and Senate bill, there's nobody who thinks that they can't be reconciled and that there will not be a bill to his desk to sign before Christmas, as he said he was going to do. But the, the odd thing is when you're spending a trillion and a half dollars, and I, I've quoted the number, and I forget, I think it's $128,000. Everybody who makes more than a million dollars a year saves, and the average middle-income person saves, let's say, for argument's sake, $1,000. Tempor- temporarily, by Right, the exactly. Way. That's a very good point. But in addition to that, why not only have the wealthiest people save, let's say, $75,000 a year instead of 128000 and spread that extra $53,000 uh, uh, amongst middle-income people. So he could have had a win-win because the irony is, if, let me just finish this, greed. if there had been more populism, if there had been a serious tax cut for the middle class that was permanent, been great. people would have tolerated the fact that the wealthy were doing very well here too because the middle class would have gotten a healthy chunk of the proverbial you know, pot. Yeah, and, and also it's, it's kind of like we have these big, huge problems. We talk about education all the time, how it's not preparing uh, kids for the jobs that are going to make them serious money, how we can't seem to get uh, – what do they call that thing that, that everybody does now with math and science stuff in the schools? STEM stuff? Yes, the STEM stuff in a lot of schools and the good computers in a lot of schools. Didn't we quote on the air the other day Joe Ayunes, the president of uh, – of, uh Northeastern's piece about how education was going to take the big the piece about education artificial is intelligence. Going to take a big we were talking hit. to somebody about it on Friday. Yes, is that with the rise of artificial intelligence uh, it, 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 with incredible speed, the only way for humans to keep up is for incredibly deep investment in education. And this is a divestiture from education kind of tax bill, as we discussed with. Everybody listening and Paul Revel. I think the issue is people have become unbelievably greedy. And instead of instead of uh, most Americans looking at people that are making 
$300 million a year, getting these $285 million buyouts from Goldman Sachs, like that Gary Cohn guy, Cohn guy that says we can all redo our kitchens for $1,000. I mean, what is he talking about? You can't even buy a refrigerator for $1,000 or not much of one anyway. That, that, that that's okay, that that's, that that's fine, that, uh, that you know, Jeff Emmelt, that we had the guy from GE, the, the story that came out about how he had one private jet. And by the way, that we're going to get the tax breaks for the private jet people, right? In this tax bill, anyway, that that um, Jeff oh, you Emma, mean in the yes, yes, that uh, that Jeffrey Emma had flew around the country in one private jet, and then he had a second private jet flying behind empty. him, empty. Just Who doesn't do that? You know, so those people don't seem to think that. So this a is good in some ways. So you think that people are getting with the program? I don't as know. A result. Oh, oh! I think some of some of the people I know, but I know a very small sample, or people on the radio. We have a lot of devoted Trump voters that still um, email, and they're and they're singing his praises, and they're thinking that this tax bill is great. So, I mean, obviously, I only know a few people. Anyway, uh, let's go to Maria. Hi, Maria in Newton. Hi, Maria. How are you? Oh, hi, hi, guys. How are you? Good. Um, so I have to say thank I have to say thank you because I won the Hamilton tickets and I owe it all to you. Whoa! Oh my God! When are you going? Uh, it's May 26th next year. Congratulations. Oh, Call great. us afterwards. Uh, I will, definitely. I, I really owe it to you guys. Well, um, so thank the you. food thing? Okay. Mm-hmm. Hell, you're welcome. Thank you. Um, the food thing is an addiction because just like alcohol, all that food will turn into sugar if he doesn't, like, run after, you know, he doesn't really exercise. I don't think he's doing a lot of running, Definitely Maria. Yeah. What do you th- what, yeah, so what that, is it? What food thing. I'm sorry, we're talking over eat, each other. Go ahead. I'm sorry. If you eat all that food from McDonald's and you don't burn it off, it just turns to sugar in your um, like carbohydrates turn to sugar. Mm-hmm. Maria, thank so, you. Thank sorry, you. Maria, we're thank having you. problems yeah, we're having here. problems with the phones, but thank you very much. Thank you very much for the call. I think you should watch that movie. What's that? Um, Supersize it? Uh, Supersize it. But we Frank just got a story from our Frank staff Phillips. here that says Warren Buffett has a legendary diet What's of sugary soda, junk food, and a f- just a few vegetables reach legendary status. He'll never make you know about that? Himself, himself. He drinks about five cans of Coca-Cola a day, Here's constantly munches on C's candy, and uses so much uh, salt that a former Wells Fargo CEO said watching him salt his food looks like a snowstorm. So he has McDonald's sausage. What is with McDonald's with these guys? Uh, McDonald's sausage, jag and cheese McMuffin with a cherry Coke. That's mm-hmm. not, I mean, that's whatever. He has a, listen to this, a Dairy Queen chili cheese dog for lunch. Strawberry, this is not true. Strawberry sundae with chopped nuts and a cherry Coke for lunch. This is Warren Buffett, <laughs> one of the wealthiest, most and successful he's, and people. he's well into his 80s, isn't he? Chicken parm with penne from famous Calabria Pizza. I assume it's a fast food joint. I, don't, I mean, really? What Some is this about? Some people can just get away with it. Well, it reminds me of the Made Knots. The Made Knots, you know, they used to have. Uh, I go to the refrigerator when I was a kid, what and I open up the door. Pepperidge Farm cream cakes and whole milk and whole cream and all this ice cream and mountains of butter. And you go out to eat with them, and they put like a half a stick of butter on every roll. You know how long they lived? How long? Like like ninety six so and ninety eight. There's a story in there. You know what I used to eat when I was in college? Beyond a whole Pagano's. Did you ever go to Pagano's when you're visiting your boyfriend? At no, Penn, Penn no. Campus? It's a good place. Was great. In any okay. case, what I would often have because yeah, I was 
living by myself at that stage, whatever, I would often have a frozen Sara Lee uh, chocolate cake <laughs> without defrosting it. Remember Woody Allen <laughs> said he used to lick his yeah. TV dinners because he couldn't wait to have them defrost or put them in the yeah. whatever it was. Yeah, I like those Sara Lee, Sara Lee oh, cakes. Man, really I, oh, good. I haven't had one in a while, actually, but the, but I usually think they're pretty good. I like the carrot cake myself with the wonderful cream cheese frosting. So we're talking about the fact that Donald Trump ran as a populist, and he seems not to be... Uh, a populist anymore. We all remember he ran. We we're going to have the great health care plan. It's going to be so much better on Obamacare, cheaper than Obamacare. It's going to be beautiful. It's going to be a beautiful health care plan. We we're going to have these great tax cuts for the middle class. That was going to be great. And the wonderful infrastructure program that was going to create uh, millions and millions of jobs. Um, I, how are, I'm sorry to be so nice. I don't understand how people are not it, uh, I mean, if Bernie Sanders well, was elected and he abandoned uh, 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 his single payer plan, right. Medicare for all, and said, we've got to pump more money into the insurance companies. We're really not being fair to big pharma. On and on and on down the list. Wouldn't people be up in arms? I mean, this gets back to the Fifth Avenue line. I'm so tired of that Fifth Avenue line. It's ridiculous. Are they so dedicated to the man that the man's flip on the policies are not relevant to them. Well, I think it's also it's it's hating the uh, other side Opposition. too. That may be it, it too. You know, That's the, a good d- point. all a bunch of liberal crybabies and snowflakes and all this kind of stuff, and and everything is Hillary Clinton's fault. Tom from Rockport. Hi, Tom. Welcome, Tom. Hi, guys. Hi. Uh, thanks for taking my call. Pleasure. Uh, uh, quick observation and then a question. Yeah. Uh, you had mentioned before that. Trump will say anything to win an argument, mm-hmm. uh, and and you're also saying that he was a populist president. But um, Trump's background never ever supported him as being popular or otherwise. And my concern with what you had said after you said he'll say anything is that you said you, you truly believe that he believes what he says mm-hmm. in the mo- honest, in the moment. I- Tom, let me finish the thought. I truly said I said I truly believe that he believes what he says at the moment he says it. I don't. I don't think there's a core, deep core belief, if that's your point. But go ahead. And, no, actually, and I think that we hear that a lot on the media, where they try to say that Trump, basically treating Trump like a child and saying, well, oh, we, we believe he actually believes that. But in fact, I don't think Trump cares one way or the other about the truth or falsity of what he's saying. He merely is trying to win an argument. Maybe you're right. Yeah, I mean, frankly, yeah. your your argument, your analysis makes a hell of a lot more sense and is borne out more by the facts than mine, Tom. So uh, I, I'll, uh, you very well may be right. And Marjorie, I think, agrees with you as well. Thank you for the, uh, for the uh, call. You don't believe he believes that. It's all about winning. Well, I think it's also in part when he goes to these rallies and he has this core of supporters that that want to hear that it's going to be a great uh, middle class tax cut and we're going to do we're going to give you a, a, all this wonderful stuff and then he goes into his whole spiel about immigration and stuff. I think he plays to that plays to that audience. But so, but but, 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 believes... but it's a lot easier to play to that audience if you didn't have to lie about the tax cut instead of having to go to Missouri, whatever it was last Wednesday, and say believes... my rich friends are all angry at yeah, me. But I told you, I think he believes if you just you lie consistently enough. You say the same thing over and over again, and people are stupid, and they'll believe you. I think that's exactly what he thinks. He said that, that you just repeat the lie over and over. Get What's back the to term the that his biographer thing? uses? His term about uh, – there's a, a phrase 
that he used, I think, in The Art of the Deal. It's about oh, embellishing hyper- hyperbole, truthful hyperbole, yeah, truthful or hyperbole. something like that. Yeah, when you say your building has twenty, uh, has sixty floors, it really only has fifty-five. Right? Floors. Didn't he do that something as well? Like that. Yeah, he said there were more more floors more in a floors building than there were. In the building than there were, and he says he's building Trump Tower in Soho. It's not in Soho, but you know, it's kind of like, well, okay, close <laughs> enough. Close enough. So I think that's we we talk about this over and over again. That was what he learned. Uh, by the influence of Roy Cohn. You just keep repeating the lie over and over and over again, and people believe the lie. 877-301-8970. We're talking about two things. We're talking about the the uh, disappearing populism of candidate Trump one year into President Trump, and I am also attempting, with the help of only Maria so far, to talk about the president's diet, which we learned about in Let Trump Be Trump, the soon-to-be-released, I think tomorrow, book by his former campaign manager, uh, Corey uh, Lewandowski. Let's go to... George in Marlboro. Hi, George. Hey. Yeah, how are you doing? Excellent. Okay. Are either of you old enough to have ever watched a TV program it's called Leave it to Beaver? Oh, uh, absolutely. That, what's that guy's name again? Yeah. Uh, uh, I know. I can't <laughs> think of the guy's name. Yes. <laughs> By the way, I want you to know you don't have to be that old, George. I saw it on one of those like Channel 542 a couple of weeks ago. But go ahead. What about it? It's an iconic TV program. There was a teenage associate of Beaver's older brother. His name was Eddie Haskell. Of course, oh, yes. yes. He was a pathological liar. He mm-hmm. lied and lied and lied and lied. Mm-hmm. Generally, that gets knocked out of you at some point, and you realize it doesn't work. Mm-hmm. Well, apparently, Donald has been able to do this for 70-some-odd years. <laughs> and we have an Eddie Haskell president, and it's worked for him so far, and apparently it, it's continued to work for him. That's all he knows. You know, George, on a serious note, had you not called after the next caller, I was going to mention that when you're in the private sector and most of the coverage of you is on places like page six, the gossip page, the New York Post, it doesn't really matter if you lie. It doesn't really matter if you say, I'm Donald Trump's press agent. What was his name? Johnny Miller. When everybody knew it was (laughs) Donald Trump. And I think you make a wonderful point that that it appears he has not transitioned from a world in which there's virtually no accountability for truth-telling, at least according to him, to a world in which telling the truth should be arguably practically the most important thing you could possibly do. But that that's a wonderful point, George. Thank you very much for making it. Yeah, Joy just emailed about that, that this is a man, this is Trump she's talking about, I didn't mind calling newspapers and pretending to be someone else, his own press secretary. And her point is that he what, didn't care about lying then. That was an incredible thing. But there's no consequence for that. I mean, what's the worst? I mean, you can keep denying it. There's not going to be a Bob Mueller subpoenaing no. your phone records to, to do a voice comparison that the voice of, I think it was John Miller or Johnny Miller, is the same as that of Donald Trump because it was Donald Trump. Of course, Trump. there is a question now. Does he really think he wasn't the person in the Access Hollywood tape, or, does, or is that just – is he delusional about that, or is he trying to, to lie about that and hope to get away uh, with I it? I really have no I idea. I mean, it's, if people haven't seen it, Billy Bush, the, uh, the uh, uh, reporter, the TV guy who was with him during the a Access Bush, Who is a Bush? Who is related to the Bushes. I think he wrote a very uh, good piece – New York uh, Times, was it? I think it was in the New York Times, yeah. explaining that it was indeed Donald Trump, that he was with him on the bus, and six or seven people were also with him on the bus, and they all heard it, and how much he regrets um, that he did not 
uh, stand up to the president, who was then, of course, not the president. He was just the star of Access Hollywood, mm-hmm. but he didn't. And Billy Bush is, um, I believe, still looking for work. Jillian in Chelmsford, you're next on Boston Public Radio. Thanks much for calling. Hi. Well, the first thing is, I, I mean, I totally agree with the person who said about this is all about, he says what he needs to say in mm-hmm. the moment. But it really is, when you look at Trump, it's really about, you know, I was hopeful, too, that he would be more populist, that he would be more on this agenda because he doesn't have a real idealism about mm-hmm. him. But I think actually the idealism that he has is just himself. And mm-hmm. if he wins and he does things well. So if he had been elected with a Democrat House in Congress and Obama had been a Republican because he really hates Obama, then he might be a populist and he might yeah. be voting differently. Like, I, I think that's I a really- great point. Well, you know, Jillian, before you <laughs> continue, I... a couple of really smart people said that Ronald Reagan was such a brilliant communicator that if Ronald Reagan had embraced liberalism in the same way that he had embraced conservatism, the whole country would have followed him wherever he, wherever he ended up going. But I guess the difference is most people thought that there was a core to Ronald Reagan well, you know, as opposed it, it, to Jillian, Donald Trump. What you say is so true in many ways because Donald Trump used to be pro-choice, used to be pro-universal health care. Uh, he used to be very uh, welcoming to gays and lesbians mm-hmm. and said that uh, uh, – that, uh, um, Remember when he interviewed uh, – Sue O'Connell interviewed yeah, him in New Hampshire. And transgender people were welcome in his bathroom and all that kind of stuff. And now he's appointed judges that are pretty radical social conservatives. So it, it is – it's kind of strange, but um, that's Jillian, what's going Jillian, thank on. you very much for your call. Anyway, remember we thought he was going to be really good on gay rights because of what he said during the campaign? And well, not only that, life? because it's pretty hard to be a high-profile person spending your whole adult life in Manhattan, and at least in my naive assessment of him, and not being be a tolerant person. But obviously that was wrong as well. And by the way, getting back to my other piece of naivete, I wasn't suggesting he was going to be FDR. I thought there was a Nixon goes to China kind of aspect to Donald Trump because of where he where he departed from traditional conservative orthodoxy, as you discussed a minute ago, that he could take the Republican Party to some enlightened places that would not otherwise go because people would follow him anywhere. But he has, follow, he has caused them to follow him right into the heart of, uh, I, I would argue, the least populist part of the uh, GOP. Coming up, we're going to talk with the Reverends Irene Monroe and Emmett Price. They are here for All Revved Up. You're listening to 89.7 WGBH, Boston Public Radio. He's Jim Browdy. And she's Marjorie Egan. And this is 89.7 WGBH, WGBH HD1, Boston. Online at WGBHnews.org. Boston's local NPR. Welcome back to Boston Public Radio. Jim Browdy and Marjorie Egan. Here with us in the studio three to take on the moral dilemmas, a reverend of the day, a reverend Irene Monroe and Emmett Price. Emmett's professor and founding executive director of the Institute for the Study of the Black Christian Experience at Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary. Irene is a syndicated religion columnist and the Boston Voice for Detours African-American Heritage Trail. Excuse me for uh, uh, digesting my (laughs) apple. Irene and uh, Emmett, it's great to see you both. Thanks for having us back. And glad to be here. Um, uh, Irene and Emmett, I want to start with um, 
actually, I'm not going to start with that. I'm going to start with something different. I want to start about these churches <laughs> that are starting to take uh, uh, people who are facing deportation into their sanctuaries uh, so that they cannot be deported. On the one hand, it's great that churches are starting to do this. On the other hand, it's only 32 churches. And I'm sort of surprised that there hasn't been more of a reaction um, from from churches. I mean, we've seen hundreds and hundreds of churches in previous situations. So what do you make of this, Emmett? Yeah, it's an interesting scenario because a lot of churches have kind of fallen prey to being comfortable over the, you know, <laughs> kind of generations of, of kind of the calm uh, around, um, you know, this immigration, you know, notion and, and some other things. And it takes a huge amount of time, huge amount of energy and a huge amount of resources and a huge, huge, huge amount of volunteers to be able to provide for these families. And so it's going to take a little bit of time to get an uptick in the folks who are willing, who have been trained, who understand the scenario, and who are willing to give up their privilege and their platform why, I mean, on behalf why, of others. Why don't we just tell the truth? The churches that, and many of the churches that don't do, uh, you know, provide sanctuary, there are two things operating, one of which is that they don't want to lose their 501 status. That, that, that's, a big, that's a big issue here. And you mean they, the government t- would take away their, well, their they worry, nonprofit? Well, yeah, they, they worry about losing losing that status. Uh, and then another and then another issue here uh, that we, we we have to be uh, most concerned about is that we haven't massaged enough uh, w- with our congregations uh, the reason why we need to take in the stranger because a lot of times a lot of these churches really don't want the risk of having of having immigrants now you know and and they see that more as a progressive. A democratic cause, as opposed to a Christian or a person that is taking a moral high ground. But you know what I find weird about what you're saying, Irene. This is purely anecdotal. If I were to say what is the thing, the one issue on which I've heard more church leaders speak up uh, in the last year or 18 months, even pre-Trump during the campaign, I would say it's on the how immigrants are our brothers and our sisters and explaining how so many are fleeing violence and desirous to feed their families. So if assuming I'm right and you're both nodding in agreement, why is the rhetoric not translated into Because I think action? what I think what happens is is that it really is sounds it is the it is the it is the it is the right thing to say and do. I think that when you have to have to actually walk that walk and you realize the cost it will, will that will come to you in doing that, it it just resonates very very differently. You will go so far but not far enough to lose some of your privileges. You know, I was thinking that the Catholic Church, which I'm a member of, should be doing more on this because they have a big united kind of deal. They're not these individual Protestant churches that are kind of out there on right, their own. Yeah. Um, and I'm disappointed to see that the, 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 the churches I read about were not Catholic churches. Well, by the way, yeah. and churches. not just the Pope, but O'Malley okay, locally yeah. is uh-huh. great on this that. issue. That's yeah. right. Yeah. I mean, there, there are a number of things. One, we've been uh, kind of uh, permeated with materialistic and, and consumeristic culture within the church. And so uh, what we're talking about here goes absolutely uh, counter to the notion of con- consumeristic. Maybe people go to church now to to get what they need to get from church, not to give what they can give to the church and to the community and to the neighborhood and to the neighbors. And so there's an intuitive piece that we have to shift. Irene is right about the fact that that what many of us are preaching um, has moved away from kind of this, what we call a social gospel, 
to this sense of trying to, you know, create calm and peace uh, that pass all the standing, right. but also this notion of healing and hope. You but know what, too? It was similar to uh, Martin Luther King complaining during the Civil Rights Movement. Remember, where are the good, I'm not where the, you know, we know where the he bad says, people I'm not, are. Where he, are the yeah. good people, yeah, the good I'm pastors, not where, the good ministers? That's right. That's right. His letter. His yes, letter from the to Birmingham jail. Birmingham jail. I, I, another thing is, is that this is how when you have um, rhetoric that's been coming out of this administration, because some people do feel like, well, we have to do a better job in vetting immigrants. Nobody wants to do something in terms of, you know, uh, provide sanctuary for an immigrant, and, and they think they're harboring a criminal. And so, with the recent case that happened, where this where this um, immigrant uh, was acquitted of all, Kate Steinle. That's right. Yeah, yeah. So a lot of people are now even more worried, and particularly yeah. with the vitriol tamped up around, you know, we need immigration reform, but it depends on which how it how it will swing. There, there's another piece to it, and I don't want to get too far away from from the Kate Steiner piece, but there's also this sense of anxiety and paranoia in the <laughs> congregation yeah. because of the vitriol that has been spewed and espoused from a variety of places, not just the White House. And so people inherently don't necessarily give up of themselves when they feel that they're in danger. And so it's hard to get people to volunteer and to do stuff for other people who they don't know when they feel like yeah. they're, they're in but danger. But that's not just in religious places. People are most willing to have government help others if they feel secure see, economically. It, I mean, that's sort of a natural... But in churches, though, though we, we, we expect our, our parishioners... To be uh, bigger. The, absolutely, to go the, the, mm. that last mile. And so the, so the, I agree with Emmett. It's that it's not that there's a lack of compassion. It's just that it's, it's coupled with an enormous amount of fear. You know, we're talking Irene Monroe and Emmett Price. I, I think everybody listening knows the only one of the four of us who is not a church-going kind of guy would be me. <laughs> But when I do think about the Bible, which I try to do whenever I can, Emmett, first person I think of <laughs> is James Comey. I'm sure you feel the same way. And James Comey. Amen, I brother. I Amen. hope everybody saw this. Right after the news of uh, Michael Flynn's guilty plea, it was, a fr- it was a Friday morning, tweets out the following. Let justice roll down like waters and righteousness <laughs> like an ever-flowing stream. And even I, not the most religious of people, know that that great line, I'm embarrassed to say I don't know where it comes from, the place MLK. I've heard well, it before Amos, is Amos, Martin Luther King. But, but, but I'm saying, but yeah, Martin Luther King yeah, and I have a dream speech as right. part of the speech, yeah, right? Yeah, So what do you, I mean, what do you make, this? I sort of love this Comey stuff in I, a weird sort a of Twitter, way. He's a Twitter prophet. He really, <laughs> he, he really is. And like the prophets, you are to speak out against injustice. Do you remember him some months back when he said, who will rid me of this meddlesome priest? So he's speaking out against wrong. One of the and, and Niebuhr, Niebuhr, a lot of people love Niebuhr because of— Twelve I, Step? Twelve Step, that's well, right. And, and yeah. by the way, you should say why you bring up uh, uh, Niebuhr. Because that because he did his thesis, and I, I think his, his uh, undergraduate thesis yeah. comparing— uh, Falwell, Jerry, yes, Falwell, Jerry Falwell, to Ryan Hall Niebuhr. And they're as different as night and day because Niebuhr is more about the use of nuclear weapons. He, I mean, he argues against that. He's about civil rights. You know, he talks about the moral dimension, you know, of war, uh, the, the stuff that we're facing today. So And wrote is, the serenity prayer. Absolutely. Amen on that one. Oh, I, I love know it. That. Yeah. And by yeah. the way, that is his, was one of the ways that Comey was found out. His original Twitter handle, after getting fired, was uh, 
uh, Niebuhr. Niebuhr. Yes. And yeah. ultimately, when he's found, I can't remember who sort of did the detective work. And to Comey's credit, he had, he wasn't like he was lying about it. He was just using the, yeah. you know, a, whatever that's called. Uh, uh, he uh, he uh, outed himself, and now he tweets under his own name. And for the for a great part. He is he he uh, posted a photograph of running water, accompanied by these words. He's a Methodist. Yeah, I he's guess, a Methodist. Well. I was going to say the the photo that he picked was gorgeous. I mean, I just see running it. stream. Is that it? Yeah, oh, it is running beautiful. stream down some rocks, and you know, uh, just a little bit of water, a lot of rocks. Which Don't shows you love the, <laughs> the tough FBI guy? That's is right. that? I a mean, it's really. It's... Yeah. You know, in my Twitter feed, B, uh, uh, I would use the uh, well-known theologian here in in Cambridge, uh, Jim Browdy. Oh, okay. yeah. yeah, absolutely. He's an he's an atheist theologian. How about that? Do you know what I've said uh, many times? Prophet, right? I, mean, I was walking through Inman Square yesterday, and I said to myself, "Let justice roll down like waters, and righteousness like an." Ever-. Did you hear that? Did you happen to be in the neighborhood? At, at the... Oh, absolutely. Yeah. At that time, I, I was by the Charles. River when yeah. I, heard you. I think that's when the sun came up, though. I mean, it just... <laughs> I'm on my way to get a corned beef and rye. Well, we're talking to Irene Monroe and uh, uh, but, Emmett Price. But seriously, one of my favorite. It's a very in terms of theologian. I'd like to know who yours. I I I um I liked uh, I liked uh, Diedrich Bonhoeffer. Oh, uh, the, but, yeah. Nancy Kane, our our guest from yeah, the Harvard her, School, wrote that wrote and I read her extensively. About right, him. and because of that, because I liked Diedrich Bonhoeffer, I went out and read her book, which is phenomenal. She really contextualized him in today. Time, but what you forget is that there are theologians that are far better than these these guys, and they're the feminist and womenist theologians. Oh, like, like Katie, Tom. like Katie, Katie Cannon. Cannon. Mm-hmm. You can go over to Harvard, Elizabeth Schuessler-Firenze, who was my advisor, or Margaret Miles. I mean, there are just a number. Jack, you know, Jackie, Jacqueline Grant, you know, um, Joan Martin. All of these who who really. Run circles around these guys. Oh, that's and, good Because you know. know why, Margaret? Why? I'm not Margaret. Margaret. Margie. Close enough. Okay, <laughs> you know why? Because they do an intersectional kind of theology. Oh, my God. We went two <laughs> weeks without that. that. In every hey, possible. Marjorie, you know what's interesting? <laughs> what? Now that Irene is listing with Emmett's help here some of these female theologians, every time you and I either off the air, on the air, talk about theologians you admire. I can't think of one who is a woman. Is there a woman on your list of well, you, I, I'm admire? One. How about I'm one. Johnson? I don't know. He's she's a, one. Is she a You're theologian? looking at us. <laughs> yeah. I think of women, uh, and I think of, she's not really a theologian. She's a poet, but she's kind of a theologian poet. Is Mary Oliver. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. From yeah, Provincetown. Yeah, yeah. I love hey, there's her. There's Mary Daly. I mean, it depends. Yeah. I mean, and, 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 and what's important is that um, we we need to surface them more so that our Pope could stop thinking that they're fruit on a fruitcake. <laughs> well, let me just tell you something. We're going to get to our Pope in a couple pope, of minutes there, Irene Monroe. And, I'm not and you were wrong, place. by the way. I no, think so. Oh, yes, you were. I, th- I think not. <laughs> we're going to talk. Uh, we have had a sex harassment epidemic sweeping the country, as we know. Charlie Rose, Matt Lau, John, James Levine, the former uh, head of the BSO and here in Boston, has been accused by... Uh, young men that, that that he went after them when they were teenagers. And right here at Boston, uh, well, not Boston Public Radio, but at Public Radio, the, the former host of The Takeaway, um, John Hockenberry, has also been accused by uh, uh, multiple colleagues of, of, of sexually abusing them as well. Um, do you you guys can't believe it. 
<laughs> I know. Emmett and I were talking about it. We are shocked. I, I know. Were you being facetious? Or no, you're being... no, not at all. I mean, I, I, I love John Hockenberg. I listened to the takeaway. Yeah, I do too. And we met but him now I will have to go away times. from my list. Well, yeah. I was an admirer too, and I have to say the only good thing I can say at this particular moment is he didn't deny it, unlike yeah. so yeah, many of right. which yeah. is not yeah. at all a yeah. defense. The original piece, by the way, if you haven't seen it, uh, Azita, my colleague from uh, on the television side, uh, emailed it or texted it, uh, texted me on, over the weekend. Thecut.com. Suki Kim uh, wrote this piece, so I guess it worked with him at some point. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. But you know, you know what's really interesting is that what's coming to light, which I'm actually fairly embarrassed by, is one of the reasons WNYC brought him in. From what I understand, was a desire to pair him with uh, uh, with uh, women. I guess right. in oh. three cases, who were uh, African Americans. I think in all. Am I right in all three cases? I know they were women of women color. Of color. I don't know and what it, and what is this? What what is rearing its head at the same time that Hockenberry is being outed for sexual harassment and those sort of things? And you should read the story because it's not pleasant actually. No, it wasn't. is that he. Uh, uh, sort of forced all these people out and yeah. the white guy who was intended to bring diversity and I, I don't want to mean to pile on him when he's down but he deserves to be down for the other thing is that he uh, almost had led like an anti-diversity yeah. crusade yeah. in some ways on his show which is really he was well, passive aggressive disappointing well yeah. this is this is horrific because I was looking on Twitter and at least two of his uh, co-anchors over the years uh, who I follow and, and have great admiration for uh, Farai Chidea so and, um, yeah. and Celeste Headley. Yeah. I mean, yeah. this story broke. And this is a classic example that shows this is about power and not necessarily about sex. Right. Because um, he's paralyzed from the chest down. So, so the notion of power and yeah. the impact that he had on their careers and on their lives is just absolutely horrific. I mean, Let me be horrible. clear here, by the way. I don't think uh, any of the three co-hosts have this has anything to do with sexual harassment, at least as far as I know. Yeah. Sexual harassment had to do with some colleagues and that sort of thing. But forcing these women who you were mentioning a minute ago, Emmett, out really does not add the, a legacy that was pretty – I should say not pretty, but wildly positive, at least until you know, a couple of weeks ago. What, week what, ago. It's so, th- this is a moment of reckoning, which I'm, 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 I'm quite elated about. I Me give, too. I give thanks to the four sisters bef- that come before us, like Anita Hill, and certainly someone like Susan Bra- uh, Brown, uh, Brown Miller, Miller, who wrote Against Our Will. What I'm hoping, though, in this moment is that there will be some policy changes that, you know, Emma and I were talking about this sort of cascade of, of or tsunami of men just coming out of, you know, I call them falling out of the closet now, being revealed. But but he, he was saying, as you were saying, I hope you say more about it, we hope that it doesn't happen to it, it it doesn't continue in a way that it that it, it becomes normalized that we say oh here, you know here comes another, another one. one and you had shared with me uh, that i didn't know that uh, matt lauer will not receive the 30 million dollars because in some ways paying them out in in many ways is sort of a slap well that's on what the nbc wrist. is saying yeah. now and yeah, marjorie made the point when i said the other day that i think it was off here how outraged i was that he even had the audacity, audacity yeah. be asking for the 30 million yeah. you made the point that fox news ended up Paying, paying O'Reilly, o- right? O'Reilly and Ailes, Megabucks, right. and O'Reilly, they'd already paid millions and millions and millions to 
the women that had accused him. So he, he cost them probably when you add it all up over a hundred million dollars. Yeah. He was a serious yeah. financial yeah. liability. Yeah, serious financial uh, uh, liability. Well, you know, it's it, it, one of the things we we've, we've been talking about a lot in, in the wake of all this, though, is that a lot of the women that have come forward are pretty powerful women themselves, women yes. with great jobs, and many people, including Katie Johnson at the Globe, have written pieces about, you know, what about the chambermaid? What about the waitress? What yeah. about the hotel worker? Everyday person. Yeah. Everyday person. And there's really not necessarily an HR department to go to complain to at the at the restaurant. You well, know? yeah. I mean, and, and part of the challenge is, is that this normalization happens at the top. And so middle managers still kind of get away with this stuff. And certainly folks in the trenches absolutely get away with the crude and the yeah. vitriolic stuff. And so we have to figure out how to create an infrastructure where zero tolerance means zero tolerance. And that whether it's an HR, whether it's an ombudsperson, as many universities have, whether it's a Title IX coordinator outside of uh, outside academia. Outside is the critical. Yeah, that's you know, it. Yeah, there are so, a lot of... Uh, 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 People in management positions for whom I have colossal respect in the world with whom I've had these discussions and almost every one of them says, and they mean it sincerely, I need my employees to know my door is always open. Mm -hmm. And what I say to them as a former union president is, trust me, they're not walking through. I mean, when you're when this is about power, as you said, Emmett, I think everybody agrees that it's I mean, that it is about power. The notion that you're going to have the courage to go to an HR department or a high-level supervisor to complain about a mid-level supervisor is preposterous. So the structural – I don't even know what they are, Irene, but I think the structural changes, maybe the statutory changes, rather than just wringing our hands every day, which it's good we're doing – when it's a Hockenberry over the weekend, it's a Lauer last or, week. Or, or, a, or a Rosenberg spouse. I mean, what we mm-hmm. will see is how, and I was very glad that they said temporarily that, you know, Stan will, Stepping down. will, will step down. But we have to see how they will handle this case here. You know, will they put new, new policies in place? I think what bothers me about all of this um, in terms of a person who's just getting away with, as, as, as with his behavior is, is Woody Allen, his, his son, um, uh, Rowan uh, Farrow has done a wonderful job reporting this, and it seems like, you know, Woody Allen gets a pass on this. And I remember, as I have said a couple of times on this show, when I was at Seventeen Magazine, I knew back then. This was even before he was even born, but you know that Woody Allen, you know, would gawk the girls at Seventeen Magazine in the fashion on the fashion floor. Well, can I? You know, I, Marjorie's tired of me saying this because she's much more optimistic about it than I. But in light of an article that one of our colleagues, Molly, just handed us from Politico, is well, I am heartened by all the Me Too's who have the courage to say something, and how even the most powerful people, particularly in the media and entertainment, are getting outed. When you have a president of the United States who has been accused by sixteen people, and the American people knew about all that before and decided to vote for him. We just – the headline, we just got – everybody knows that in the last 24 hours, Donald Trump tweeted saying uh, Roy Moore – essentially endorsing Moore. Well, what has been added to the story by Politico as of, I guess, an hour ago is Trump called Roy Moore to endorse him, which obviously allows Moore to say, I just got a call from the president of the United States. It's very (laughs) popular in Alabama. So I guess my question – I know my question is how much progress can we make when the leader of the country, if not – the world mm-hmm. is uh, is Mune. accused of being yeah. a serial sexual harasser or worse, mm-hmm. and is uh, just endorsed a child molester who has a serious chance eight days from now being elected to the United States. I mean, how do you how do you? Yeah, I mean, it, it, there's the we 
and there's the we, <laughs> mm-hmm. right? And so the the we in terms of the big, you know, the C-suite of the, of the United States of America, yeah, we have a little bit of impact there, but we can't control that. But we can control what we believe and how mm-hmm. we feel and what means yeah. something to us and what our integrity is and what our character is. And I think on the groundswell, although it's going to take some time to do that because everybody's caught up in partisanship and, and, and what side of the aisle you're on, but at the end of the day, when we think about our families and our cellular systems and our groupings and our neighborhoods and our communities, we have to stand up for what we believe is good character, good moral character, and good integrity. But, but, Emmett, what... but it, yeah, I, I mean, I'm, I'm certainly seeing partisan morality certainly play here. Uh, and it was very, very interesting. I was very glad that Billy Bush, who certainly uh, corroborated yeah. that indeed that was Donald on that Access Hollywood tape. But, but, I, but I think that more, and we just have to continue to do a public outcry about about not only Roy Moore but 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 Donald Trump. I, I, I it, because other than that, we're saying that on the ground we're doing it right, but not in the highest office. Can I say one last thing about that? When you said uh, partisan morality, the Democrats have not covered themselves in uh, uh, in That's right. with anything positive. We spoke to Chuck Todd on Thursday about his interview, which I thought was one of the most embarrassing political interviews I've ever heard with Nancy Pelosi. (laughs) And it is only when a woman who signed a confidentiality agreement Mm -hmm. who was sexually harassed and worse by John Conyers had the courage to break that confidentiality Mm -hmm. agreement and uh, uh, do an interview explaining what he did to her, where Nancy Pelosi and Jim Clyburn and others finally, Democrats, yeah. finally had yeah. to do the right yeah. thing. So this is uh, I, I, the, neither side. And I, I know people hate false equivalency. The Republicans have probably been worse. The Democrats have not been, in my opinion, praiseworthy. Yeah. There's either, either zero uh, tolerance or there is not. It, it, exactly, because so none of that matters. I mean, you yeah. got to step outside of the aisle, step outside of the room, and let's, let's stop playing ping pong with this stuff. I agree. Yeah. Strong morals are strong morals. So, integrity is integrity. So Character what happens? Character. Right, so it just what, was reminded me by one of our coworkers, Amanda, Al Franken, as far as we know, is still in the United States that's Senate. That's right. I was going to say that. Right. We're, we're so not, is John Conyers. Right. I just in, mentioned in the house. Right, yeah. right. We're not Franken with him, but, but we I'm certainly are. But, 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 but. Okay. <laughs> Irene is trying to filibuster because she was wrong last week. Last week, we, you know, you're about a quarter right, Irene. The, the, the discussion was when Pope Francis went to Myanmar uh, the other day, would he actually say the words, which actually mattered a lot, the name that the Muslim minority, which has been persecuted horribly, Rohingya, would he say the words? Well, you said no, Emmett said yes. Mm-hmm. The reason you're a quarter right is he didn't say them in that country. He only said them later when he met with some uh, uh, Rohingya refugees in Bangladesh. Bangladesh. I would say that Emmett wins that one. Is that not a so, safe? No, that, I don't. You know what the word? Not. The word? No, <laughs> of, course of course not. not. <laughs> yeah, the the word for the word for uh, 2017 is complicit. That is correct. Dictionary.com okay? said right. that, and yep. that's like those who speak out against powerful figures and institutions, and those who stay silent. I need the Pope to speak out against this atrocity in the place that it is taking place. And what happens is is that these folks feel not only damned and, and 
and disinherited but and dispossessed, but they also feel they are stateless people. And I think that if you're going to talk about taking a moral high ground, you speak the truth in the place where the genocide is taking where the genocide is actually taking place. Well, you so get no, half a point for that. No, too, I should actually. get a full that's point. A good and, one. and you, you know, I get for your point, Janet. Oh, I don't need to argue with Irene. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the Pope said the presence of God today is also called Rohingya. I love that line. That's that it. beautiful. Yeah, but wow. he needed. You know what? But he needed to say it. Actually, okay. in the place where the Rohingyas are How about being that? persecuted, Irene, Irene's a micromanager. So <laughs> no, I mean, we're just going to let no. that be. He, he can stay wherever no, he I, is I, no. with the digitosphere that we have, and no. if you can tweet something and get it all around the world. The Pope said what he needed to no, say. No, he said, you know, we that's passive. That's passive aggressive. That doesn't. You know what? That's not even walking a straight line. You know what they say? God writes straight with crooked lines. So another Pope will probably say it. Nice to see you both. Okay, the Reverends Irene Monroe and Emmett Price join us every week for All Revved Up. Irene is a syndicated religion columnist and the Boston voice for Detour's African American Heritage Trail. Emmett Price, professor of worship, church, and culture, and founding executive director of the Institute for the Study of the Black Christian Experience at Gordon Conwell Theological Seminary. Seminary, where Wednesday, this no, that's next Wednesday, next December thirteenth, at seven o'clock, there will be a Christmas jazz vespers featuring the Emmett Price Trio. Hey, How yes. exciting is that? The event is free and open to the community. Irene Monroe and Emmett Price, thank you very much, and congratulations, Emmett. Next Wednesday, December, December 13th, 13th at 7 o'clock, at Gordon, right? Gordon Conwell Theological, Gordon Conwell Theological Center. Theological Center. Okay, the Emmett Price Trio. Up next, See Emmett Price. Morning in America is getting darker as one daytime TV personality after another gets accused of sexual misconduct. TV historian Bob Thompson joins us for that and more. He is next on 89.7 WGBH, Boston Public Radio. Welcome back to Boston Public Radio. Jim Bradley, Marjorie. two weeks ago when we were talking to Bob Thompson, one of his picks for what to watch was the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade, which for years has been hosted by Matt Lauer. Here he comes. That's right. The man in red everyone loves. We're not talking about Santa Claus. It's Kool-Aid Man, presented by Kraft Foods. Flashing his iconic nine-foot smile, Kool-Aid Man stirs up holiday cheer the whole family can enjoy. Kool-Aid has been bringing smiles since 1927 and will continue to do so with a couple of new flavors this year, Sharkleberry Finn and Green Apple. Love Sharkleberry Finn, by the way. Of course, today Matt Lauer makes Bob Thompson's worst TV moment of the week. He joins us on the line to talk about Lauer's career spontaneously combusting, just the latest in the line of TV celebrities. Bob is a professor and founding director of the Blyer Center for TV and Popular Culture at Syracuse University. Hey there, Bob. Hey, you guys. You know, when we played that same clip uh, last week, it was funny because it was so stupid. Now it's just creepy. <laughs> is it well, ever? You know, I, I, I was stunned by the Matt Lauer stories, but you being in the business, maybe you weren't? I was stunned. I mean, now that uh, I hear all the stories, apparently many people at NBC and many of his colleagues, of course, if these stories are true, his colleagues were experiencing it. Uh, so apparently this wasn't a very uh, well-kept secret, but I'd been on the air with Matt Lauer a number of times. I'd been in the studio with him. But, you know, that's TV. That's a totally different thing than, uh, uh, you know, being in the workplace. And I, I was never there. 
So what happens when – I mean, what's the consequence of uh, not just Lauer – but Charlie Rose, I don't know if George Stephanopoulos is nervous over there, but hopefully not. I mean, more these morning shows are pretty important. So what's the the spillover? What's the impact beyond the individuals, do you think, there, Bob? Well, the impact for the individuals in those two cases, I think, is their careers are essentially over. I mean, they can do a podcast if they want, but so can you, you know, so can anybody. <laughs> um, uh, so uh, the impact for the uh, organizations and the shows, I think, is – Twofold. One, all of this stuff that's been going on for so long in an environment where it didn't get reported, or if it did, it wasn't paid attention to or acted upon it, there's going to be a big catch-up period, and that's what we're in right now, where all this stuff that's already happened needs to now be uh, come to grips with. The second thing is they're going to have to come up with uh, creating an environment where it doesn't continue to happen. In the meantime, they've got to find ways to replace these people in ways that will uh, uh, work chemically with the rest of the people on the air. And that's easier said than uh, easier said than done, especially with the Today Show. Today's show is four hours long. Mm. Three of their four hours are in serious jeopardy. The first two hours, of course, uh, Matt Lauer has been uh, 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 fired, and they've got to find uh, someone to, in that major anchor role. The third hour is none other than... Um, Megan Kelly, who we've talked about many times on this show, has been very challenged in the ratings. Who would have guessed a year ago that of the four hours of the Today Show, the only one that would be safe and controversy-free would be Hoda and Kathy Lee drinking wine at 10 o'clock? Well, you know, Bob, Bob Thompson, this may be crazy, but I thought that maybe this would be an opportunity for Megan Kelly, who's really been struggling, to stop trying to be Oprah uh, light and or Oprah terrible actually because she doesn't do it very well and go <laughs> Oprah back terrible yeah, yeah and like go back that. to being like a more hard news person what and op- trashing Matt Lauer no, from the, her no, own station opening opening up the seven o'clock hour doing oh. more hard news and having other people do the the lighter fare if I, I think if if Megyn Kelly had made her transition to NBC uh, more successfully in terms of ratings. I think that would have been an absolutely natural place to, to, to slip her into Matt Lauer's slot. She's got some history at a place with sexual harassment, giving her some street cred. Uh, she has done that kind of show before. However, I would be really, really surprised if NBC did that, because already they've seen her on her Sunday night news magazine mm-hmm. show. Didn't work all that well. They've seen her on her morning talk show. Didn't work all that well. And that, that first two hours of the Today Show is an important part of the uh, income stream of NBC. And I think that would be pretty dangerous to put someone in there who already has, I don't know if we'll call it two strikes, but she's hit two close foul balls, put it that way. So, uh, Bob, I want you to do a hypothetical for me. There was supposed to be an HLN documentary on the Clinton-Lewinsky thing originally called the Monica Lewinsky scandal. And then Lewinsky tweets with a red line over the Monica Lewinsky scandal and replaces it with the Starr investigation, as in Ken Starr, or the Clinton impeachment, and says, fixed it for you, you're welcome. And ultimately, HLN changes it to how it really happened. Would any of that have happened, meaning the change, were it not for the current environment? No, I think it would have been called the Monica Lewinsky scandal because that's what everybody called it uh, mm-hmm. back then. And it's only now that it's being retrofitted, and I think for good reason. Uh, yeah, good for her. It, it had never occurred to me, I have to admit, uh, ashamedly, uh, it never occurred to me to call it anything but the Monica Lewinsky scandal. 
and we've called a lot of these uh, things by the person, uh, 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 by the unknown woman who was involved, as opposed to the polit- political leader, which is why we're paying attention in the first place. So, uh, yeah, I think she made a perfectly good point. I think it's good that HLN uh, responded. And I think from here on in, uh, thinking people are going to think more carefully when they talk about that period in uh, our history. So, Bob Thompson, here is Seth Meyers uh, introducing his uh, Wednesday show. Well, listen to what he had to say. Oh, yeah. uh, I also want to say that this is a Wednesday night show. Uh, you just saw the tree lighting if you were watching NBC. Here's the thing about the tree lighting. Uh, there are so many people around the building that we could not tape our show on Wednesday. We couldn't even get into the building. So we taped this Tuesday night after our Tuesday show. Uh, the only reason I would even point that out is so much stuff happens in the world today that there's an excellent chance something crazy happened that we won't comment on because we taped a day earlier. And I don't want you to tune in and say, like, how come he didn't have a joke about how the president got in fight with the White House Christmas tree? (laughs) We didn't know. Or a joke about how Matt Lauer uh, lost his job, which was the uh, same day. I mean, this stands in contrast to the embarrassment of uh, Morning Joe, where they take their day after Thanksgiving show saying how stuffed they were from the night before and how great the football games were attempting to pull a scam. So he gets a couple of points for this, doesn't he? He does, and uh, it was a very smart thing to do because anybody who was sneaking late-night uh, 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 talk shows or any kind of topical uh, subject uh, taping ahead of time these days is playing a very dangerous game. Um, Colbert tapes his Friday nights on Thursday nights, but he oh, always know that. does a nod and a wink, and we all know that he's, you know, he, he fesses up to it in uh, some kind of clever ways. But what was so Nostradamus of this is how, if you were watching that on uh, Wednesday night or whenever it was, of course, the Lauer story had already broken, and it just rang so true because he then went on to not tell jokes about it. I will say, however, that the night after that, he hammered uh, Matt Lauer. And you've got to give MSNBC and NBC credit that they have not flinched on this story at all. they've not. And because they've got the inside because it's happening there, I think probably some of the most harshest uh, uh, prosecution of this particular story has been done by uh, Matt Lauer's own former employer. Well, since you mentioned it, here is Seth Meyers on Thursday night catching up. Now you might be thinking, how bad must this behavior have been to force NBC News to fire arguably its most profitable and powerful figure? I'll let Matt Lauer himself answer that. You were probably the last guy in the world that they wanted to fire because you were the guy that the ratings and the revenues were built on. You carried that network on your shoulders for a lot of years. So doesn't it seem safe to assume that the people at Fox News were given a piece of information or given some evidence that simply made it impossible for you to stay on at Fox News? Wow. He was talking to Bill O'Reilly, but he could have just as easily been talking to a mirror. <laughs> Bob, did you see the funnier die thing where Matt Lauer interviews Matt Lauer about? Yeah. Uh, it was pretty great, uh, actually. We're talking to Bob Thompson. Okay, Bob Thompson, what is your best this week? Last night, uh, Carol Burnett had a special two hours long uh, for her 50th anniversary. She started on Jeez. September 11th, 19. 19- uh, 67, and it had a big lineup of uh, Amy Poehler, Maya, Maya Rudolph, Jane Lynch, Vicki Lawrence, Tina Fey, Jay Leno, Bill Hader, Steve Martin, Colbert, of Jeez. course, and he sang, of course, 
Jim Carrey, Martin Short, Queen, Queen Latifah, went on and on and on. And it was one of these kind of retro clip shows produced to within an inch of its life. But the Carol Burnett show really was an important show. And to have a female comedy variety host her, having her own half-hour show for 10 years on uh, CBS starting in 1967 was a big deal. Yeah, we're going to play a clip from it, in it, from it in a second, but I tuned in last night and thought I couldn't it, she was great herself in this in this retrospective in, in, talking and being interviewed and interviewing other people and I thought some of the bits were really funny. So here's a little clip uh, in the opening to her 50th anniversary show Carol Burnett is explaining her famous ear tug to say hello to her grandmother. When I got my first job on television, I called her and I said, Nanny, I'm going to be on television Saturday. Watch me. And she said, well, you have to say hello to me. And I said, I I don't think they're going to let me say hello, Nanny, you know. So I said, tell you what, we worked it out that I would pull this earlobe. And so as, hello, Nanny, I'm fine. I love you. And then a few years later, after I kind of got a little more successful, it meant, hello, Nanny. I'm fine. I love you. Your check's on the way. (laughs) So was she the first woman to have this kind of thing on television, Bo? Well, you had um, Imogene Coca was one of the uh, uh, players on uh, your shows. And she became, along with Sid Caesar, really kind of the the star of that. Uh, But she didn't host it. And she didn't. uh, I mean, this was called The Carol Burnett Show. Mm -hmm. Um, I think she managed to do one of her contemporaries, Phyllis Diller, who certainly got her uh, you know, into uh, the popular culture and the American consciousness. But I think Carol Burnett was a little more able to do a mainstream hour comedy that Phyllis Diller, I think, uh, you know, belonged more talking to Johnny in Late Night. And some people may forget, but uh, th- that show went from 67 to um, 78. But there was a period very briefly for a season. I think it was the 73-74 season. It could have been the one after that. Check out the uh, Saturday Night CBS lineup. Mary Tyler Moore, MASH, All in the Family, oh Bob God. Newhart, rounded out by the Carol Burnett Show. Wow. You know That has got to be the greatest lineup in network television. Watching this last night it made me think, where has she been? Because um, it seemed to me that Phyllis Diller went on way longer into her... She's probably in her 80s or something. Yeah, but where's she been since oh, the late 70s? Oh, she's been doing all kinds of stuff. She she's has. got a recurring role on Hawaii Five-0. She does. A pretty decently rated uh, CBS procedural uh, show. She was on Glee. Um, playing what? I think Kristen Chenoweth's mother, who, who in fact came on to the uh, uh, show. Uh, she's been doing, I think, that TV land uh, hot in Cleveland. She, she's been making a but lot of... But I guess I meant in terms of like being a, being a comic, just sort of being a... Oh, I a, see. You know, is it because you can't be a, an older woman comic or what? Well, I don't know that you... I, you know, I don't know the answer to that question, whether that's something she's less interested in doing. But you're right. I haven't seen an HBO special of Carol doing stand-up. But, you know, she didn't. that's not what she used to do. She basically did the singing and dancing yeah. with that little, uh, little monologue, which isn't to say they couldn't do something else besides a reunion special with her. By the way, these reunion specials have a reputation of being – I haven't seen the numbers for last night, but um, – after September 11th, it was November 26th, I think, in 2001, Carol Burnett did a reunion special, and it got 30 million viewers, which was a lot back then. Wow. Um, and everybody said, oh, this is because you know people want to go back to simpler times. But they forgot that back in 1993, 
Carol Burnett had done a reunion uh, in much better times. The Cold War was over. Terrorism hadn't really uh, uh, kicked in. And she got almost a 30 million uh, uh, audience at that point. So the conclusion, I think, is that, yes, we may like these things in, in hard times like we had it last night. But people just seem to like Carol Burnett reunion special. Well, you know, to the tune of thirty million viewers. Fast forwarding to someone who's not going to get thirty million viewers, but I'm a big fan. Michelle Wolf from The Daily Show has an HBO special. Have you seen it? I have, uh, and of course, this was taped before um, uh, the Matt Lauer uh, thing, so she does, isn't able to address that specifically. But she. And um, Robin Thede over in BET and Samantha B and another female, a number of female comics, are really going after give, schooling people about the fact that women are not necessarily attracted to all these things that these skeevy men keep uh, <laughs> uh, keep doing. Uh, and I have to say, it's that, that Michelle uh, uh, Wolf thing raised my consciousness a little further. And I keep thinking, if we had had more female comics over the past couple of decades, yeah. a lot of this stuff, I'm not saying it wouldn't have happened, but uh, I think it would have completely changed the, uh, the mindset, because I think a lot of these guys that are doing all this stuff in the towels and the exposing themselves and all the rest of it, somehow think somewhere in their mind that, that women are into this. And yeah. these comics are, are setting that uh, story straight. Yeah, it is amazing that they think. I don't know where the heck these men got this idea, but I'm glad she's she's pointing it out. So let's talk about uh, somebody that we a lot of us grew up with, Jim Neighbors, uh, Gomer Pyle in the Navy, and and uh, and he was on the Andy Griffith Show. He died at 87. Tell us about his contributions. Right, he started on the Andy Griffith Show as this uh, uh, really kind of uh, straight out of the a book of stereotypes Rube character yeah. or Hick uh, uh, character. He uh, ran the filling station, but he couldn't fix the cars. All he could do was uh, put the gas in, and he had to actually pause and think that F means she's empty. Uh, I mean, F means she's full. E means she's empty. He had a little pneumatic de- you know, device for this uh, uh, kind of thing. But he was so lovable with his really uh, heavy dialect and uh, all the rest of it. So uh, he starts out as a you know kind of minor recurring character, ends up getting his own series. Yep. What was so bizarre about this series is, think of its dates, 1964 to 1969. What happens in 1964? Gulf of Tonkin resolution that really officially kind of starts the Vietnam War in a big way. Um, and then 1968, of course, uh, the Tet Offensive, horrible year for casualties. So 64 to 69 are just terrible, terrible years bracketing the Vietnam War. The title of, uh, of uh, Jim Neighbor's show is Gomer Pyle, USMC. He take, it takes place um, in the Marine Corps. That's where it's set. Never once from 64 to 69 is there ever a mention that we're in a war? Uh, the big stories would be what happened. Will Gomer's locker be clean enough for the big inspection? Um, <laughs> that's how primetime TV dealt with the Vietnam War um, back then. And then, of course, the news had come on, and you'd see, you know, Morley Safer in the middle of a battlefield. You know, the first thing I Googled uh, Jim Neighbors the night that I heard he died, I don't know, over the weekend or something. You know what the first thing that comes up, at least for me, was none of his. Uh, uh, comedic acting, 
but him singing oh in that God. incredibly deep voice. And when yeah. you first heard it come out of his mouth, you went, what? How is this yes. even remotely He's, possible? He, an unbelievably great voice. Yeah, he did. Right? They pulled that off on an Andy Griffith show. I remember as a little kid in my living room with my parents watching this episode I, really distinctly where I forget what it's all about, but Gomer talks in that high-pitched whatever, and then he all of a sudden breaks out into that beautiful baritone. Yeah. And it was it, it blew us all away. Yeah, what he used to say all the time? Golly, golly, yeah. He had two. He had Shazam! Two that's right. That was a big thing. So, Bob, somebody who much lower profile than neighbors died, but I, I loved uh, some of the stuff this guy did. Tell people about Ken Shapiro, particularly those who've never heard of him. Yeah, if you're younger than uh, about 50, you probably haven't hear, heard of him. Uh, in 1974, Ken Shapiro did this kind of underground film called The Groove Tube. And it was based on some stuff he'd been doing on stage uh, in New York and in some small uh, uh, local TV there. And it essentially was a movie that made fun of television, from commercials to public service announcements um, uh, uh, to every other aspect. And it did it in a really kind of R-rated sort of way. Now, you t- by today's standards, you'd think, well, big deal. Everybody does that kind of thing. But everybody wasn't doing it back then. Saturday Night Live was still a year away. Uh, Mad TV, of course, hadn't happened yet. Uh, SCTV would, would, would very much uh, uh, be dependent on the groove tube uh, had not happened yet. So it really set the stage for a lot of that stuff. Now, we shouldn't completely overstate this. Your show of shows had done some of this stuff way back in the early 50s. Um, uh, Ernie Kovacs uh, back in the early 60s. But this little film, The Groove Tube, is probably way more influential than it is known today. Well, you know, I, I, there was a little clip on there. I don't know if this is the Groove Tube or just some other stuff that Shapiro did with Chevy Chase. Chevy Chase is in the Groove Tube. Y- right. Yeah, it, yeah. It, but this little clip was of uh, of him sitting in a striped coat and he's singing a he's singing a song, and he also had a surprisingly good voice. While this guy is like playing his head like a pair of drums. It was that's in that's in Groove Tube. Hysterical it was in. I didn't know where it was from. It was in the Groove Tube. It's a riot. I was 15 when that came out, and I remember when I came to uh, when I came into school. I mean, th- this was a period in which uh, there were certain people who were into David Cassidy, who we talked about uh, uh, last week, and there's certain people who were into other things. And when I was 15, there was a small but select group of uh, kind of naughty eggheads who were th- the Groove Tube had become their new gospel. Well, you know, one other thing, again, put in context, there's a PSA in it about venereal disease, and it's narrated by a puppet (laughs) whose face is is a set of male genitalia. So, I mean, it's where it's it's actually it's yeah. pretty funny. In any case, what are we watching uh, this uh, week? I bet you I can guess. Tonight, good uh, HBO, uh, um, the life and time, the newspaper man colon the life Can't and times of Ben Bradley. And since he read from his uh, an audio book from uh, uh, his autobiography, A Good Life. A good chunk of this 90-minute documentary starting at 8 o'clock tonight on HBO is actually in his own great journalistic gravelly voice. Hey, by the way, here's a little piece from uh, the HBO documentary. Here's a piece from the trailer. One of the great editors of our time, Ben Bradley of the Washington Post, recounts his life at the center of some of this country's biggest moments in the last half of the 20th century. Ben's great bed noir was public officials who lied. 
throne of the press in the Watergate affair is being contested almost as hotly as the fate of Richard Nixon. It really was the Washington Post versus Richard Nixon. So, Bob, here's a quiz. Did you recognize the voice of the narrator for the first part of that uh, trailer, who that might have been? No, I didn't. Charlie Rose. (laughs) I I did not notice that. Also, uh, then we'll retroactively go back and say Kevin Spacey was in Carol Burnett's 50th anniversary, and they cut him and replaced him with Colbert. Is that so? (laughs) So two of the things we talked about today are... uh, you know, part of this whole thing. By the way, for those... T- oh, my uh, goodness. Couldn't they have fixed that in time for the broadcast? That sort of puts a little taint on the HBO. Well, I love that it's still there. They, they did this a long time ago. Yeah, also, I mean, for those who were not oh, around the, for Ben... Brand Bradley thing. Yeah. No, yeah. There's, been, there's uh, not just Watergate. There's the Pentagon Papers. There's his relationship with JFK. Obviously, a close one. I mean, there's a lot. I can't wait to see this. There's a Yeah, there's a lot in it. And, and it reminds us when young people aspired to yeah. be journalists because it was a noble and wonderful calling. And that was the true back in that era, all the president's men and all that. I think it may be coming true again, even though we're in a very different business model era. Oh, when, you see right. what, when you see what the Washington Post and, and I would say the New York Times are doing in these, uh, in these Trump times, it's really, really impressive. That's why I go I bananas when people talk about the fake news. And by the way, when Brian Ross made that mistake at ABC, mm-hmm. what happened to him? He was suspended for a month Four weeks without, without, pay. without pay. So um, you know, the, the media is eating its own when they deserve it, and you don't see that in the government very much. Bob, it's good to talk to you. As always, next week we'll connect again. I'll look forward to it. Thank you. Thank you. Bob Thompson, thank you very much. Bob Thompson joins us every week. He's the founding director of the Blyer Center for TV and Popular Culture and a trustee professor of TV and Popular Culture at the Newhouse School of Public Communications at Syracuse University. Coming up, a little nervous about where America's headed? You want to become a British citizen? We're opening the lines and quizzing you about all things United Kingdom from Haggis to the Hundred Year War, just in case you want to take the test. That is next on 89.7 WGBH, Boston Public Radio. Welcome back to Boston Public Radio, Jim Brady and Marjorie. And this should not only be fun, this is almost like a public service kind of thing, Marjorie. It is. If you thought Meghan Markle is getting off easy, making a fairy tale escape from her imploding healthcare system, soaring deficit, North Korea, nuclear threat, by way of that royal wedding, think again, becoming a British citizen, I didn't know this till today, is a lot harder than saying I do. Marco will have to pass a British citizenship exam, which is notoriously hard, unlike ours, by the way. We're using this as an opportunity for our first edition, I'm sure there'll be many, of So You Think You Can Be a British Citizen. Test your knowledge of King Henry and Haggis right here at 877-301-8970. Here's how it works. You call that number. What's the number again? 877-301-8970. And then what happens when someone calls? Some, uh, one of our staff members picks up. And then what happens? And then we talk to them on the radio. And then we say, here is a me? question from the British citizenship right. test. Correct. And let me tell you, and it's multiple choice. You won't be totally humiliated. It is a lot harder. We, if we One of our colleagues pulled out the, uh, the civics, the citizenship test to become uh, naturalized here. What is the supreme law of the land? Hello? What do we call the first 10 amendments of the Constitution? Uh, you know, on and on. What is freedom of religion? I mean, they are really basic. I have to say, of the 20 questions on the British citizenship uh, exam, I got three right. It is really hard. Do you yeah. know any of these things? 
No, I don't know anything. I don't know many of them on the American one either, I'm embarrassed to say. Well, th- I mean, when you say what does the Constitution do, I would say it protects the rights of Americans. I wouldn't say it defines the government and sets up the government. Would who, you? Said it, who said that? That's one of the answers for what, oh, in the what United does the States Constitution one? What do? is the supreme law of the land, Marjorie? I know United that. States. What it is, is the that? Constitution. Okay, what do we call the first ten amendments of the Constitution? Bill of Rights. Okay. Don't I mean, ask me any more questions. I'm not going to ask you any more questions. I'll fall down on the job Okay. Here. Can you name the, uh, uh, the five freedoms guaranteed by the First Amendment? Yes, I can. I don't think you can yes, name I the can. fifth. Assembly, assembly, mm-hmm. speech, religion, um, uh, asking the government, petitioning the government, and of course, freedom of the press. Petition the government is the hardest one. Everybody forgets that one. Did you read yeah. that or did you petition, really know it? Petition the government for redress. Did you read it or you I read it, it right here. Okay. <laughs> 877 <laughs> Do you remember that great – we're going to get back to the topic at hand in a second. There was a great study – about 15 years ago from the, in Minneapolis, I don't even know what the group was, was the Minneapolis newspaper, that by a factor of like 100, more people could name all five members the of the Simpsons. Simpson family, <laughs> as in that. Homer Simpson, that could name the five freedoms guaranteed by the First Amendment. But that has nothing to do with it today. You're going to call in, and assuming you want to escape, or maybe you might want to escape someday, we will ask you a question from the British citizen uh, uh Test, I guess you call it, examination, and we'll see how you do. Is that fair enough? That is fair. Okay, let's do it. Let's. Where do you want to start? Let's start with Susan in Kingsborough. Hi, Susan. Hi. Would you like to be a British citizen, Susan? First, I I am ready, and I'm heartbroken that Harry did not choose me. But, um, <laughs> yeah, I'm going to pass this test, and <laughs> so, and Susan, who knows? so yeah. Susan, you're very excited about the the royal wedding to be the Prince Harry Meghan Markle wedding. I'm very excited about it too. It won't be quite the same as when Kate and Will got married, because of course, Why? well, because he's because the he's future be king. king. Or so it was a little bit more snazzy, and and uh, but all that, I'm pretty psyched about it. But Susan, if you get this I, question ready, right, you may find a prince someday too. Who knows? <laughs> I'll, I hope so. We'll see. Now, Susan, Marjorie's going to read you the question and the answers, and I am here to wish you lots of luck. Go okay, ahead, Marjorie. Here we go. What is the official name of the country? A, England. B, Great Britain. Mm. C, Great Britain and Northern Ireland. D, the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Northern Ireland. Or E, the United Kingdom. I thought this was hard. I got it wrong. I did, too. This is hard. It is hard. Um, well, I, I'm going to go with D. You are right. Wow, ding, ding, you ding. You are right. I just thought it was the plain old United Kingdom. So but I. in fact, you're right. It's the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Northern Ireland. I think that we should email Prince Harry immediately, Susan. And it's not too late. We've got to I think we should do. Yeah. My, my dad's a history teacher, so he would be proud of me. That's I was a history good. major, and I have no idea what the answer was. Susan, thank you very much oh, for Susan, the Oh, Susan, before you go. What happened? Do you think, okay. Pri- do you think Prince Harry is the son of the <laughs> stable hand again. or the son of Prince Charles? A lot of speculation, you know, that Diana, because Camilla Parker Bowles was the third person in their marriage, even before they got married, that she thought, well, you know, I why may not? as well. Why not? And that the handsome stable hand, James Ewart, I believe his name is, is the actual father of Prince Harry, who looks a lot you know, like him. He, he looks more like Diana, I think. But Diana was such a classy woman. I, you know, I feel like she mm. probably is. Prince I've thought a lot about this. Now. Susan, my understanding is Frank Sinatra was the father. Susan, thank you very much. <laughs> For the uh, for the call now, the next question I will ask I will ask it from Grant from Milton. How are you, Grant? How are you, Jim? How are you, Marjorie? Are you in? Wait a second. It's terrific. Do you have an accent? 
Uh, no, but I must confess, my mother was a British citizen. Oh well, that's almost not fair. So you should get you should this should be a breeze for you, correct? Well, we'll see. Okay, this is I would this is one of the few I got right. I don't mean to put pressure on you, but I actually okay. knew this one. To whom do no new citizens swear loyalty? A. Parliament. B. Winston Churchill. C. The Queen. Or D. The Prime Minister. A. B. C. Or D. The Queen. That is correct. They also swear allegiance to her heirs. And uh, right. successors. Do you know a lot about uh, Great Britain or no? Yes, I do. Actually, it was my uh, my minor um, in uh, graduate school. Well, then, you know what we're going to do? We're going to violate all the rules of the show. We're going to ask you a second question and put you in your place there, Grant. You ready? How long did the Hundred Years' War actually last? 99 years, 116 years, 200 years, or 75 years? How many would that be? I think it was 116. Oh, my God. Congrats, Grant. You are now a citizen of the UK. Thank you very much for your call. There was great confidence in Grant's voice, too. Did you notice that? You know, I, I shouldn't have called James Ewart a stable hand. Why, what He's was actually he? a former British cavalry officer, and he was in the British Army. And uh, if you look at pictures of his profile compared, exactly to, like. compared to Harry, um, well, they look very much alike to me. By the way, I was humiliated when you asked the mayor the other day if she thought the <laughs> stable hand was actually the father. <laughs> He's not the stale hand. I think he was her equestrian instructor uh, because, as I said, he was a former cavalry officer. Let's go to Alice in Falmouth, Maine. Hi, Alice. Hi, Alice. Good afternoon. So are you packing your bags? Long time listener. Oh, thank you very much for that. I'm packing my bags. So uh, this there's a lot. You don't, okay, there's a lot hanging on this. Marjorie's going to ask you this question. Take your time. Again, if you just tuned in, it's from the British citizenship test that Meghan Markle has to pass That's or else right. she can't, whatever. Okay, here we go. How long did the Hundred Years' War... We did that one already. Oh, I was, watching, I was looking up James Ewan. It's good you're paying attention <laughs> to the show. Okay. okay, try the next one, okay. Marjorie. Which is not a cricket term. You ready? Mm-hmm. A. I'm ready. A. Maiden over. Mm-hmm. B. Sticky Wicket, Ooh. C, Virgin Bat, and D, Bold a Googly. Which is not? Is that your question? Yes. Which is not? I believe I believe it's A. Oh, that's that so sad. That is a good guess, but it's not. Okay, here's what's oh, left. No. It's either Sticky, sticky Wicket, Virgin Bat, or Bold a Googly. Well, I know D is right. Mm-hmm. Um... So, B? No, that's wrong, judges. That That is, why are you giving ding, 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 ding? I it's, thought it was... No, she said B. It was Virgin Bat. Yes, Marjorie's not paying yes, attention to the show. Alice said Virgin Our Bat. Our colleagues are not paying attention to the shows. <laughs> now, before you go away here, you can uh, redeem yourself a little bit, Alice. You said, I know that bold a googly is correct. What is a googly? Alice? Oh, my... I don't think I can redeem myself. Oh, you don't know what a googly um, is? You just know that that's a term that's used in cricket. I, I know googly is used in, in cricket. I watched enough uh, Downton Abbey to watch oh. cricket games. But oh. um, I think it's, it, I don't know, if you bowl a googly, is that kind of like striking out a batter? I don't know. Judges, do you have any idea what bowling a googly is? Does anybody in there have any idea what's going on here? And apparently not. We're going to check it out, Alice, and we will let you know as soon as uh, we know. I would like to point out that... Hold it. That, uh, what? 
A googly is a form of delivery bowled by a right arm f- French spin bowler or something. I'm repeating some part of what Amanda just told me. I have no idea what it is either, but Alice, don't worry about it. You got it on your second try, sort of. Thank you very much. I would like for to point out the, the Daily Mail. Here's the headline from the Daily Mail what? Princess Diana's former lover, James Hewitt, 58. <laughs> you stop, Marjorie. He's left the hospital eight weeks after a devastating heart attack. And uh, they gave him just a slim chance for surviving. But indeed, he has survived. He's now left the hospital. And he's made an excellent uh, recovery. And he has spent the last 30 years fending off rumors that he is the father of Prince Harry. What does he say when asked? Is that why he he had the attack? Well, the the Daily Mail is kind of announcing – Daily Mail is announcing this fact that they had a five-year affair with the late princess. They did? Yes. I'll look up what he says. Wait, is it a fact or not a fact? They're just saying he had a five-year affair. Okay. Well, there you go. Okay. Well, you know what I'll do? You keep researching that issue, and I'll ask the callers the questions, and then we can go home. Okay. (laughs) Because obviously you're totally uninterested in this. The reason we're asking this is I was not aware of this. To become a British citizen, Meghan Markle, whose name we all – I never even heard of her until a week ago, even though she's on that show. Suits, is that the name of it? you ever seen that show? No. Neither have I. And, uh, but she has to become a citizen. She has to take a test. And unlike the test to be a naturalized United States citizen, this is really hard. Oh. This is another one that I actually knew. What? I know now what he has oh said. What he's asked. Are you are you Harry's father? What does he say? No, I am not. Wow. Is that really what he said? A man <laughs> of few words. That's what he said. No, I am not. Well, okay. 877-301-8970. Uh, Megan apparently wants to be a British citizen as well. Is that correct, Megan? Yes. Okay. Why? You have to explain to us. Why would you like to become a British citizen, please? Uh, get me out of our country uh, oh. anywhere but here. Okay, that's good enough. That's fine. Now, here's your question because Marjorie's not paying attention. I will ask it. <laughs> what, who's who is not? Again, the key word being not an important figure in British literature. A. Shakespeare. B. Jane Austen. C. Charles Dickens. A D. J.K. Rowling. Or E. E.L. James. Oh. Take your time. It's either E or Charles Dickens. I thought Charles Dickens might be American. I'll well, why don't you just for... choose one? Go ahead. Just go for it. I think go for your first instinct. Um, your first guess. Dickens. No, oh, go no, with I the other your one. first guess go was with the E.L. James. E. I mean E. That's what you meant, obviously. E, Thank absolutely. you very much. <laughs> now, what did E.L. James write, Marjorie? Fifty Shades of Grey. Exactly. Oh, my goodness. Did you know that? I, I didn't. Not. I know it now. I, I know it now. Did, now. did you did you read Fifty Shades of Grey, Megan? I certainly did not. No. No. I no. started it and was roundly disappointed. I think she took a little bit too much time to say no for my <laughs> taste. Megan will believe you anyway. Marjorie, can you do me a favor? What? Could you explain one more time when James Hewitt was confronted <laughs> with the question of whether or not he was the actual biological father for Harry Prince Harry? His response was what again? Please quote. I can it. tell you that the former uh, he was veteran Stable of the hand. Iraq War, by the way, in oh. the in the cavalry for the for the British really? Royal Army, a former polo player as I didn't well, know that. and he took Diana under his wing and gave her instructions in the stable. Yeah. <laughs> by Australian uh, television host Melissa Doyle, oh. are you Harry's father? What did he say again? <laughs> no, I am not. Wow. Diana's former lover replied, but they're reporting it as if that there's no doubt that, that they a... were lovers for five wow. years, and they had to split up. 
uh, after the affair was made public, and that was after he was sent to the Iraq War in 1999. Now, if, before we go to the next caller, which uh, it's going to be Sarah from Newton, are you mm-hmm. paying enough attention to actually ask her a question, or is, are you consumed by the stable hand? Well, you know, this, the reason is because Diana, you know, was very young and naive when she married Prince yeah. Charles, and I think she had thought that this was going to be a wonderful marriage, yeah. and, and before the marriage and all during the marriage, Charles sure. was in love with somebody else, Camilla mm-hmm. Parker Bowles, and some people say, isn't that great in a way because Camilla Parker Bowles uh, was a woman of stature and not necessarily, uh, you know, she was uh, older than he and and not as gorgeous as Diana. And so that, 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 but but at the same time, Diana was in love, and poor Prince Charles was in love with somebody else. So mm. that's why I hope that she did have, you know, a five year okay. affair. My with... question was: Are you actually paying attention to the show enough to ask a question of one of the callers? Yes, I am. Okay, Sarah from Newton, you were next on Boston Public Radio. What do you think about James Hewitt before? <laughs> We ask you the question, the citizenship question. Yes or no? Dick. What? Fifty Shades of Grey? Yeah. What did you say? <laughs> no, we don't care about Fifty Shades of Grey. You can tell us that, too. I'm always interested in what people think about Fifty Shades of Grey. It's an erotic uh, story. What do you think? It's, it's stupid. It's dumb. Yeah. It's like the dumbest. It's a terrible read. It um, is awful. I, I read like five pages. Yeah. It sounds like a... 15-year-old. Yeah. That's what Marjorie tired. said, too, It was too, terrible. Actually. She was always, like, tripping and falling down and making, saying, holy cow, yeah. all the time. You know, if you're writing an erotic okay, novel, fine, you don't Marjorie. want to hear holy cow every third line. Now, Sarah, before we get you, Marjorie's going to read your question. Yeah. Do you believe that James Hewitt was telling the truth when he told that Australian reporter, no, I am not Harry's father? Do you believe he's telling the truth? I do, because Diana's brother... Is a ginger, just like his nephew. That is a very it's true. But, but there's no question to... that Diana was the mother. That's not really the issue. But you have no, to look no, at her brother, Diana's brother. Has red yes, hair. the one that gave the eulogy at a funeral. Yeah, He's also he got red hair. But here, but 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 Sarah, you have to look at the pictures of the profiles mm-hmm. of Harry and James Hewitt, mm-hmm. Calvary man, polo player. I think the profiles could give it away. Just saying. I think whatever they had together might be between and and Harry. They're just such a classy family That's in a, a lot of ways. Point. Like I, I, the boys. Yeah, I don't they think are. Could ever dismiss Charles. The boys are wonderful, actually. Okay, enough of this. And that's because Diana was such a good mother. Okay, could you please ask Sarah from Newton the, one of the citizenship okay. questions? This in, is the British citizenship. Okay, in 1348, okay. what disease wiped out one-third of the populations of England, Scotland, and Wales? Wow. A, diphtheria, B, malaria, C, the Black Death, or D, cholera? Uh, C. See, wow. that is absolutely right. Did you watch Wolf Hall, Sarah, Sarah on PBS here, the Masterpiece PBS? Remember in Wolf Hall, Thomas uh, Rylance's children and wife were all killed by the we black call him death. Mark Rylance, too. Mark Rylance. Whoops, Mark Rylance. He was playing he was Thomas on our Cromwell. Show. Do you remember that? Before yeah, he called him Thomas. Or... He played Thomas Cromwell know, in, in, in Wolf Hall, and it was Mark Rylance, not Thomas. I'm sorry. But that was a very sad scene, and that's very when he sad. turned hmm. into a... Um, uh, kind of cagey person. Sarah, uh, thank you for the call. You know, Marjorie, I don't want to tell you what to do because yep. you're your own person, but you now have an every Monday column <laughs> at the Boston Globe. And if there Should is ever about, a column that is screamed out for getting Prince to Harry? the bottom of an issue, th- this James Hewitt 
is the issue. Let's try to squeeze in one more. Uh, We're glad that James Hewitt recovered because he had a very bad heart attack and stroke. Chuck in Medford, you are next and probably last on Boston Public Radio. Do you want to be a British citizen to begin with? Let's get that out of the way. Uh, Yes, I do. Why is that, Chuck? I have family there, and uh, I live escape from uh, this dystopia of the uh, United States under Trump. <laughs> okay, why okay, don't you do the go. haggis question? Because that's something most oh, people might question, actually which know. Which number is that? That's number 14. Number 14, okay. Haggis is a traditional food of which country? Mm. A, Northern Ireland. Yep. B, and by the way, haggis has got like sheep hearts and liver and everything else in yeah. it. Okay, A, Northern Ireland, B, Wales, C, England, D, Scotland. What about it, Chuck? Uh, I didn't think that uh, Haggis was from Scotland. You Very are absolutely right. Done, Chuck. Congratulations. It's sheep stomach stuffed with offal, suet, onions, and oatmeal. Mm. Ugh. What is offal? Thank I you, no Chuck, idea. for calling in. Yeah, we're out of time. Thank goodness. I know th- th- thank you very much for the call, Chuck, and thank you very much uh, all Organ for Organ meat. Thank you very much, Amanda. I think we should do a poll tomorrow on who is the father. No, it's really – let me tell you something. I think most people who are big public radio fans will be proud of you, Marjorie, because you, you're really dealing with some of the issues that, that, that really matter. I mean, I'm I taking them on, Jim. Nobody else will. No. Okay, thank you for listening to another edition of Boston Public Radio. Tomorrow we're going to be live at our WGBH studio at the Boston Public Library, which mm. is in the back bay. If you're in the area, stop on by. John Gruber will be taking your calls on the GOT, GOP tax bill, explaining it for us. Carol Rose from the ACLU will be with us, and Corby Kummer, a food man, will also be at the library. I want to thank our crew, Chelsea Murs, Amanda McGowan, Tori Bedford, Jason Tureski, Molly Boygon, Christina Bieni. Our engineer is John the Claw Parker. We're a production of WGBH. Jim, you've been so nice saying nice things about my column at the yeah. Boston Herald today. Extra Boston time. Globe used to work Oops. at the Boston Herald. I'm no longer at the Boston Herald. That is a very good Sorry. point. That's only been about it, three or it four was years. <laughs> I'm now working for the Boston yes, Globe. Yes, And I have an op-ed today about sex harassment. So, you do. It's great uh, But get extended time to tell you tell us what you're doing on your spectacular we show. We actually have a very special guest tonight. Which is tonight. no longer on NECN. No, it's here. I work here at uh, WGBH. <laughs> no, we're really excited. We've worked a long time to get him. We have James Hewitt tonight leading <laughs> off the show, and I plan to ask him directly the question on Marjorie's mind. Are you or are you... Uh, uh, former Chief Justice of the SJC, Margaret Marshall, everybody knows, wrote the opinion that first legalized marriage equality. She'll join me tonight. There's a case being argued before the Supreme Court tomorrow featuring religious liberty and a wedding cake. We're going to talk about that. A lifetime tenure, which obviously matters a lot with these judges. Don Stern, former U.S. Attorney, and uh, he'll be joined by somebody else. I can't read the writing uh, to talk about all the Flynn stuff, the tax policy. Adam Riley's got a great piece on the bike wars in Cambridge, which are sort of rearing their head again. And then I'm going to talk about gun legislation in Congress that I'm guessing you didn't even know was happening, but should. I am Marjorie Egan. I'm Jim Browdy. Thank you so much for tuning in. Please tune in again tomorrow, and I hope you have a nice afternoon.